0: You're listening to the Boogeyman's Closet podcast. Explicit language and spoilers ahead. You've been warned. And we are back for yet another episode of The Boogeyman's Closet. As always, I am Mike Alvarez. But unfortunately, both Maurice and Susie cannot be here today. Uh, Maurice had won some concert tickets last minute, so he's off enjoying a show. And Susie's got a very busy summer going on. But I have two very special guests joining me today. It's
1: a me, the Strasbourg,
2: <laughs> And it's me, Mike O'May. I don't have monkeypox pox.
1: <laughs> yet. Wait, does that does that imply that I do have monkeypox? Are you, like, outing me on the podcast already? <laughs>
2: no, I just wanted to, like, proclaim that because I thought it would be really funny.
0: <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen, like, the, the the like, legions and sores that people can get from. Oh, my God. It's, like, super herpes. Oh, my God. Like, I, I felt <laughs> so, so bad. I saw that this girl on TikTok. She was kind of like, hey, this is an informational video. Like, this is what it can look like. I felt so bad for it because it, it looked like, what is that? Was it tryptophobia or whatever the where you, yeah. people freaked out by holes in this game? It looked like that. I'm like, oh, this poor woman. You know, she was saying like it, it was sore, but it, it wasn't like as painful as it looks. But still, it's like, ah, I feel bad for you. <laughs> like That sucks. So, yeah, monkeypox, no joke. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we kind of got off on a weird ramble there. We are continuing our month of Against All Odds films. With one of my favorites from childhood, it shouldn't probably be a favorite from childhood, but it is, episode 150, Death Wish, from 1974. Uh, It's an hour and 33 minutes, directed by Michael Winner, who we would know from the Death Wish sequels, part two and three, The Sentinel, Firepower, and The Mechanic, another Charles Bronson vehicle. I'll just go around the table and, and see what everyone thinks. Uh, you know what, Mike, we'll we'll kick it off with you. What, what are your thoughts on this?
2: So I've always been a really big fan of Death Wish as like an action movie. And mm-hmm. I've never watched it critically until last night. And I kind of had thoughts going into it that it would be problematic uh, kind of looking, looking at it through a 21st century lens. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It actually like if you can remove yourself from Charles Bronson shooting bad guys. Yeah. It constantly is addressing the elephant in the room from all the problems that a vigilante would bring up in discussion. Mm-hmm. And I loved it for that. And it's uh it's competently shot. It's got that great, gritty New York exploit like exploitation look to it. Yeah. Uh that for whatever reason the seventies as an aesthetic was very like stinky and <laughs> grimy you know what i mean like yeah, it's it's yeah. rare that you see, i think it's the film stock and it's the lighting but it's rare that you watch a movie from the 70s you're like oh that looks like clean and it's always like new york city chicago san francisco where it just looks grimy you're in the underbelly that 42nd street kind of feel to it and uh, everything
0: is sticky to the touch
2: yeah <laughs> yeah it's a grindhouse theater yep but um I love it and a lot of the topics that it addresses I'll kind of, you know, I'll bring them up as you go through them as plot points but um, I'm glad that it didn't shy away from things that like you would need to talk about now if you had a vigilante and um, I find it kind of funny that it's been like 49 years since this movie came out, almost 50 and we're going through the exact same problem again. Yep. We're right back where we started kind of cyclically. Um, So this is probably going to be one of the least funny episodes that I'll partake in because I'll be serious most of the time um, because there's very little room for joking when it comes to Death Wish. So I take yeah, it there's... to the sequels and then it's a blast.
0: Right? Yeah, well, well, Gull and Globus got a hold of it and, you know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um.
0: But yeah, no, th- there's very, very little levity in these films. And, and that's honestly a very important aspect of them. But uh, before I get into what I think, Josh, what what are your thoughts on
1: this? Yeah, I I definitely agree. I agree with Mike that this is, um, I think it holds up as one of those movies from the 70s that falls into the canon of things like The Godfather and The Poseidon Adventure, um, where it it really holds up and it still has something to say, you know, all these years later. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I definitely agree. I love the aesthetic of it in a way that I used to hate when I was younger, like as a kid, it was like anything made before like 1980 with the exception of, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like Halloween, like I, I wasn't interested, you know, yep. I, I wasn't going to make it through, you know, maybe, maybe give me the remake, but uh, now I definitely appreciate the aesthetic. Hell, I even used to avoid that first Rocky movie and just always go for all the sequels and I am a huge Rocky fan. So mm-hmm. it was like, oh, I guess I'll watch that first one in the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I really definitely love the aesthetic now. Like I was kind of reveling in it watching it last night. Yeah. Like, like Mike mentioned, everything's sort of gritty and dirty but also there's something about the yeah like the film stock or whatever it is where the colors are always really warm you know really orange and red and yellow uh there's you know very little cool lighting um yeah and everything just even when characters are cold on the screen everyone just seems so like hot like they're in a hot stuffy room where they you know the (laughs) the furnace is cranked up too high i don't i don't know why that comes across visually but you know that that's what i get out of it so i i was really enjoying the aesthetic of it until fucking jeff goldblum and his cronies came on the screen and kind of ruined the vibe Uh, (laughs) yeah no but uh yeah it's it's hard to just enjoy it in the way that you can vicariously enjoy the revenge bloodshed of the sequels. This one has, has few you know, moments like that. There, there is a scene where uh, the main character, Paul himself, he says something along the lines of like, you know, what am I supposed to cry my whole life? When his like son-in-law is asking him like, why he's in a good mood and like listening to music and like, you know, trying to have a good time. And he kind of snaps at him like, you know, can you just let me get past the tragedy and try to be normal for a little while. But I, I when I was younger, I used to complain that the pacing of this movie was just awful, 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 so slow and boring. And there it, it was the ratio of like exciting action sequences to character development was just way off. But, you know, a, as a more patient adult, I really appreciate the fact that this is not a Hollywood story arc. It's a really realistic, I think, story arc of how a person, you know, can change both – because of like a trauma but also then at at some point making a decision to say okay this is the course of action that i'm that i'm following like you know be damned like this is what i'm doing and giving it the time to have that uh you know that uh that mental process happen in like real time almost because it's so fucking slow (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but yeah all
2: in all i really like it i like the sequels a hell of a lot better but this is a great movie you know Oh, Mike, good. before you chime in, I'm still confused after all these years. Is that his son-in-law or his son? Son-in-law. Okay. son It's always yeah. like mom, dad.
0: Yeah, that's something I I, I think we kind of lost culturally um, that was, was commonplace in, in decades past where, like, you know, when you marry somebody, like, you refer to their parents as mom and dad. I know, like... Mm-hmm that was a thing with my parents like my mom referred to my dad's parents as mom and dad and i know when uh when i got married my my mother-in-law used to say oh you can call me mom and it always felt weird to me to to call her mom um so you know it's like i, I had i had a i mean i did it because the, she she asked me to but it
2: was it, i never called my father-in-law dad um yeah i don't if i did that to my father-in-law he'd be like what are you fucking doing exactly yeah. like and, yeah and I, my name is don like, like just, just shut up exactly yeah, you, you just quoted my father-in-law so his
1: name is jim but he said the exact same thing to me after Christine and i got married and i kind of jokingly was like hey dad we're going outside you know to grill something and he was like what did you call me what's <laughs> my, my name, name <laughs> <laughs> I'm like shit okay
0: that's kind of funny i didn't realize that your father-in-law's name was jim as well mine is my father-in-law's <laughs> name is jim too um, a lot of
1: jim a lot of Jims in in my family on christina's side everyone on my side of the family is robert in some fashion like rob bob or whatever everyone on christina's side is jim or james or jimmy of some kind it's kind of confusing
0: <laughs> but yeah it's yeah that that is a thing I, I feel like we've lost culturally and i i don't think it's a bad thing um but yeah, so I, I agree with both of you uh, that this this film has very little levity, um, and it is definitely very poignant in how it, sh- it deals with violence. And this is something I've talked about on this show before with a film like Last House on the Left, where you're dealing with this very heavy, very upsetting subject matter, and they, they don't shy away from showing it to you, um, but they don't celebrate the violence. And now the the thing I always say about last house and left is that like when you, when the killers have done what they did, there's this moment where they're looking at each other and they almost look disgusted with one another. Like they're, they're cleaning themselves up and they, they kind of have this look of disgust. And then at the end of the film, when the parents have gotten revenge and everything is said and done, there's this moment where they both break down. Like their daughter is still gone. And it shows you that the circle of violence solved absolutely nothing and this film plays in that sandbox very well and i really love it for it because there's a moment when when paul you know you when he decides like this is what i'm going to do like like you were saying josh he gets he gets it in his head he's going to go out he's going to clean up the streets he's going to do this when he kills his first bad guy his first mugger um he he doesn't put him down clean he he shoots him in the belly and the guy is writhing around in pain and paul runs away he has this look of fear And then when Mm -hmm. he gets home, he falls to his knees and he's rocking back and forth going, oh, Jesus, what have I done? Oh, God, what have I done? Like, and he's shaking and then he runs to the bathroom and vomits. And there's this this turn like he eventually accepts what he's done and he starts leaning into it. But it's not an immediate thing. It's not a celebration of the violence. And he gets fucked up a couple of times. So it's like Mm -hmm. it's showing you like. It's not just this one-man killing machine, like, you know, super cop type of thing. It shows you the problems with with revenge. And and I I I love this film for it. Um the sequels, like both of you have said, <laughs> are kind of more of a just it's a canon films romp, <laughs> you know? It's like, let's just get in and shoot <laughs> yep. the bad guys, you know. Uh, like part three is totally citizens on patrol. Like he teaches like a, a group of elderly people to defend their neighborhood from a group of street toughs, you know?
1: Yeah. He becomes like a superhero. He's like fucking Batman and shit.
0: (laughs) He's got the, every movie, his gun gets bigger, you know, it's, (laughs) it's silly, but I mean, if looking at this, this first film, it really doesn't have any of that. And I, and I, I just, I adore it. Um, I really can't say much bad about it like it's it's a short film it's only an hour and a half uh you know it, it it does its pacing is slow I will give you guys that but I didn't find myself bored at any point I was I was interested in what was happening on the screen I was interested in watching the changes of Paul I was interested in seeing what the cops were doing like how they were getting involved with this like do we catch him do we not catch him like what are we supposed to do here like,
1: I, I found all of that at
0: least interesting. However, there are a lot of very bad actors in this movie.
1: <laughs> yes, so, and unfortunately, Charles Bronson is one of them. But <laughs>
0: it's okay. He's, he's not the best. He's not no. the best. I, do, I, I love him because I, watched, I mentioned this at the top. I watched this movie way too young. Mm-hmm. um, And so I have that nostalgic love of Charles Bronson. But, man, that's, that's one of those things. I, I got to bring it up here. I don't know what the hell my parents were thinking. Like, I wasn't allowed to watch... Stuff like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, that was just banned in my house. I watched it when I was 17. Yet, I was a child watching the Death Wish franchise. And I again, I was living at my house on 22nd Street, so it was before I was 11. <laughs> I was watching the first three movies because we had <laughs> recorded them, I think, off yep. of HBO or something. But I remember sitting at home and watching at least Death, Death Wish 3. I watched a lot. And playing with my G.I. Joe's in the living room. Just watching it over and over again. And it's like, this is not a movie for kids. (laughs) What the hell?
1: Same here. Same here. My, My dad... Uh, I think had a soft spot for these types of movies, these sorts of, uh, you know, a vigilante on a mission kind of movies. Like he was a big fan of like Steven Seagal, you know, and, uh, and, and war movies and things like Delta Force and shit like that. And yeah, we watched, we watched tons of like Charles Bronson and like Chuck Norris movies and Steven Seagal movies when I was a kid. And, uh, Oh, yeah. like and I, and I grew up with a love for those those types of movies, too, you know, where like, you know, it's like one man against the world. <laughs> yep. And it's probably why I like, you know, superhero comics, because that's kind of what this is kind of the same thing. But spandex instead of like hand cannons, you know. <laughs> um, yep. But yeah, we watched way too much of this stuff when I was a kid. Hell, the first movie I can remember ever seeing with my dad uh, was fucking Platoon in 1987. Um, and then he thought that was good for me at seven years old. So yep. you know, hey, Noah, no no dis- just no disrespect to my dad at all. But it's just like the times were different, man.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I'll give you a perfect example. Like when I realized, like, oh shit, I watched a lot of stuff as a kid that I probably shouldn't have was when when Caleb like Caleb really wanted to watch Return of the Living Dead, and he was only like four. Now I saw it when I was five. So you're five or six, somewhere around there. I, I saw it when I was very young. And I have the the cast of Trash's face, like the mold of her face as a zombie in my mm-hmm. office. I have the poster, you know, I have Tarman stuff around. Like he has seen Return of the Living Dead stuff since he was a baby. So he's been asking about it, was very curious. But I was like, you know, it's it's a dark comedy, like, you know, yeah, I can I can kind of fast forward through the booby part, you know, if I need to. That it's not not that bad. Showed him Return of the Living Dead, he loved it. He thought it was hilarious thought the zombies were fun. I mean, at that point, he's already playing video games that got this stuff in it. So it's like not a big deal. We watched part two. He thought it was hilarious. So I'm like, okay, he likes these these horror movies. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years later, I think he was about <laughs> seven and it was on Father's Day. I want to watch Creepshow. So he's like, oh yeah, I want to watch that too. And again, keep in mind, monsters, nothing. Didn't bother him. The monsters were fine. The zombies were fine in Return of the Living Dead. None of that bothered him. The scene that got him in Creepshow where he, like, freaked out is where the daughter bashes the her dad's head in with the ashtray. So the violence oh. scene. Mm-hmm. like, And it was quick. You know, it's just that, like, she hits him, and then you see, like, the stark colors on the screen, and, you know, like, you see him laying there dead and all that. He freaked the fuck out. I had to turn the movie off. And, I, and then I felt so bad. I was like, oh, crap, I really scared him. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like... I saw all this stuff when I was young. Maybe I shouldn't have. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Like my view of what's normal viewing is probably off.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, we're in the generation that was parented by video stores, watch raised by rentals, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> where we were taught that if there's crime, if there's injustice, go get a gun and solve it.
1: Yep. Yeah.
2: Go Arnold Schwarzenegger your way through your problems. Commando. <laughs> yeah, like hide in a shed and cut a guy's arm off and throw a <laughs> a lawnmower, like a weed whacker blade, like a frisbee, like all those jokes, but you know, I mean, I live in Rochester. The we have the fifth highest murder rate in the nation. We're higher than Chicago. Niagara oh. Falls is no joke.
3: Oh no. <laughs>
2: um and yeah, I watched uh, Death Wish and I think like, man, only if somebody was if there was just this guy in his 50s with a gun who, you know, has a the body of an Adonis, by the way. Like they have to take that <laughs> moment They have Charles Bunts in a thong bikini um, <laughs> rocking a banana hammock, you know, to go out there and shoot all the drug dealers and the bad guys and the arsonists and the guys who shoot cops and the cops. And it's. It's not the answer, but you watch these movies and you think that's going to solve the problem. Yep. And well, it's not.
0: You know, one thing I, I, I before we, we get into the movie proper, I meant to mention this earlier when, uh, when Josh, you had brought up the Rocky movies. Um, there's another comparison I'd like to draw here with specifically with Sylvester Stallone. If you watch the first Rambo movie, like it's about a movie or it's, it's about a man with PTSD. Like it is a depressing, sad, really well-made film. And I yep. feel that that's kind of what this is. It's it's about a man who has nothing left left to lose. You know, he's like, fuck it. I'm going to take the law into my own hands because they're not solving problems for me. Like, I want revenge. Like, it's, it's a sad film. But then when you look at the sequels to both franchises, <laughs> it's just right. like, one-man army, kill all the bad guys, pew, pew. <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a stark contrast <laughs> between
3: the two films. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. That's a really, really, you know, like apt comparison. But yeah, because Rocky was like, Well, didn't it win the hug and Oscar or whatever? Like it was a you know, a, like an art house film. And then, right. you know, all the way already in part two, it was like, okay, we're gonna ramp up like the Hollywood isms. And yeah, by the time you get to the fourth movie, it's just like a parody of itself and a parody of like Hollywood and just America in general. Like right. <laughs> it became the definition of like a cheesy 80s movie with all the montages and robots <laughs> and rock music and it's like how do you go from this like little like indie art flick to that hey right. you leave paulie's girlfriend alone <laughs> <laughs> every hey time... i didn't say i i didn't say that i hated it i i love every goddamn minute of rocky four <laughs> and i made my kids watch that one first like we'll watch the rest of it later on when they <laughs> when they can be patient enough to give a crap but we watch rocky four on the fourth of july every year
0: <laughs> Man, seriously rocky four is there is there like any other more American 80s film than Rocky IV. Like, it's just... Uh, I know no, so false. many people that that grew up watching that shit. <laughs> like, and it was just like, you know, I, I'm hearing the Team America song in my head. You know, the America, fuck yeah! Like, that's just... That movie embodies that, and I love it. I
2: think the only thing Rocky IV is missing that a lot of other, like, action classics from the 80s has is the... Very homoerotic subtext <laughs> of like Top Gun or Roadhouse. <laughs> yep. Oh, Whatever. yeah. You know, unless Polly's that's a guy robot. I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, God. The weird way it says happy birthday, Polly. Like, it's yeah. stuck in
2: my brain. The music. Mm-hmm. Beep, I, boop, beep, beep, boop. <laughs> every every oh, 80s God. movie
0: needed a robot. Yeah. You know? Fucking Rocky, Space Camp. Star Wars. Oh,
1: like, I love Space Camp so much. It's, it's a just, shame
2: that they didn't bring that <laughs> robot back in the sequels. It's like Pauly was around.
1: Right. Where was the robot? <laughs> he, I mean, <laughs> he did
0: something to the robot.
2: You know, instead of Creed, that's the spinoff that I want. <laughs> <laughs> Is Pauly's Pauly and his robot, robot girlfriend.
3: <laughs> oh, I want
0: oh, that women. Pauly.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Imagine you know, like escaped all the sad. Like you want you to go on the internet and like you look at neckbeards with their like their waifu pillows. Like this side guy, the sad guy at a diner with like an inanimate, like an inanimate object that's his lover. But can you imagine Paulie at like Denny's getting a grand slam with his ridiculous <laughs> '80s robot and people looking at him weird, like what? I love her.
0: He put the wig on it that like ET was wearing, that weird blonde wig. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it can only say happy birthday, Polly, so like, that's the only thing it keeps saying. She completes me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit.
1: You had me at happy birthday, Polly.
3: (laughs) (laughs)
0: Oh, man. We haven't even gotten into the cast. We already got a whole pre-ramble with Rocky involved. Oh, we're talking about Death Wish. Oops. We're on on the (laughs) wrong
1: franchise.
0: (laughs) All right, let's let's run into the cast here. So we got uh, Paul Kersey, played by Charles Bronson, uh, who we would know from, obviously, the other Death Wish films, which there are five of. Uh, The Mechanic, Family of Cops 1 through 3, The
2: Stone Killer, Death Hunt, and the Dirty Dozen.
0: Uh, Then we have Joanna Kersey.
2: Uh, 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 Do not forget Maybe the Greatest Western of All Time, Once Upon a Time in the West. True, true. Where he plays the man with the harmonica. If I'll you guys either. haven't seen it, good God, you're you're missing out on a treat. He was also in a lot of the Western
0: TV shows like Bonanza and uh, Rawhide and shit like yes. that. And um, he was old
2: when he did those. <laughs> so, yeah. No, yeah. He
0: got, I, I think he got his career when he was old.
1: <laughs> he
2: yeah, definitely I mean, had like, he's got that Liam Neeson trajectory.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> for sure. I mean, he was in like 52 or 53 when they filmed this movie. And it was like, this is a whole like second career as an action star.
0: Yep. And it's it's crazy too, because like he he looks yeah, I mean he definitely looks old in this movie. Not like super old, but he looks old. By part two, like <laughs> they have him like jumping off of buildings and shit, and you can tell it's a stunt man, because it's like, nah, he would have broke every bone in his leg. Like, nah. That's not happening. But uh we have Joanna Kersey, played by Hope Lang, who uh those of us listening to this show would know her from Nightmare on Elm Street 2, where she plays uh was it Mrs. Walsh? Um, she was in Dead Before Dawn, Blue Velvet, and Murder She Wrote. Then we have Franco ochoa played by Vincent Gardina, who I will not call Franco ochoa throughout the entire movie. I will refer to him as Mr. mushnik because he's Mr. Yep. mushnik from Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he's also in All in the Family. Uh, he's in Death Wish too, The Twilight Zone, Ray Bradbury Theater, Mission Impossible, Gunsmoke, a lot of television stuff. Then we have Jack Toby, played by Stephen Keats, who possibly one of the worst actors in this film. Uh, he was in Kojak, The A Team, The Twilight Zone, Murder She Wrote, and Freddy's Nightmares. And then Carol Toby, who's runner up for worst actor in this film. Kathleen Tolan, uh, she was in Ryan's Hope and The Rosary Murders. And then Ames Janechill, played by Stuart Margolin, who was in Gunsmoke, Mash, Iron Eagle, and The X Files. I also want to comment on the fact that his name is Ames and he's the guy who gives him the gun. I find that.
3: Aww.
0: not <laughs> <laughs> why? <wah. laughs> But also in this movie, we have a a couple of uh, of, of, uh, actors that we would all know. We have Jeff Goldblum and his first appearance ever. Like, this is his first film. Uh, Christopher Guest. Paul Dooley, which cracks me up. He's he's the guy who quotes the stab. He's like, and I quote, I fucking got him. I fucking got the bastard. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, dude, you're from Popeye. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, we have Al Lewis, which I have trivia questions about. Because according to the trivia, like, everything I've seen, every bit of, of information about this movie, Al Lewis is in the credits as the, the doorman at the hotel. Um, You see it all over the place. Al Lewis in the movie. And, but in the in the trivia on IMDb, it says Al Lewis is falsely reported to be in this film. And I'm like, wait, what? Everywhere, like, everywhere it says that he's in this movie, even on his own Wikipedia page.
2: Like That's not Al Lewis.
1: And, yeah, that's why so I was wondering. Him. I'm
0: like, is it him?
1: Well, that's like the same thing. Like, people say that Denzel Washington was like an extra in this, too. And he has come out to say, no, that's not me. Right.
2: Like, you know, L. Lewis is a pretty common name, too. You know, it's like. Yeah. I'm Mike Smith. There's like five billion Mike Smiths. It, it It's possible.
0: I was I was really curious because I'm like everywhere it says that he's in it. But then in the like, it, it's it's weird because on IMDb for the movie, it says he's in it. And then on the trivia page
2: on the same
0: film it says he's not in it so i'm like
2: i mean he he sort of looks like al lewis's brother (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: it's weird but uh for anyone who hasn't seen this movie the basic plot is a new york city architect becomes a one-man vigilante squad after his wife is murdered by street punks it's a very basic uh outline there but that's that's the gist so we open with paul and his wife joanna on a beach in hawaii uh, they're on vacation, having a good old time. Paul's getting a little frisky in his banana hammock, which was un- uncomfortable to watch. Um, but we see snippets of their happy vacation while the opening credits roll. Clearly, this is a happily married couple, so they're kind of yeah. like
2: hammering that home. I have no problem in saying this. His mm-hmm. wife looks pretty good. Oh, yeah. No, no. She well, no I'm just, just saying, like, Clue Gallagher knew what he was doing in uh,
0: <laughs> number two. <laughs> I, I mean, Yeah. <laughs> Um, I also have to take this this moment to to call out my mom because she has a huge crush on Charles Bronson. <laughs> and, like There was I, uh, so many times growing up, like she would suggest watching Death Wish and I never really knew why because it's not her type of film. It wasn't <laughs> until I was a teenager that she was like, oh, I used to have a huge crush. And I'm like, that's why you always wanted to watch. Ew! <laughs> like, <laughs> so I used to tease her all the time about it.
2: An enduring quality about... Charles Bronson, he's one of those actors that's like, okay, Charles Bronson, you're an architect. So he puts on glasses and just says, I'm an architect. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay, you're a doctor, and he puts on a white coat, I'm a doctor.
0: Which he does in part two.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's literally (laughs) like, he has zero range. Nope. And it works. It's just like, he's very, very good at that. (laughs) Like, I believe him as a conscientious objector. Yeah. That that it's more the movie than it is uh, Charles Bronson, but it always cracks me up. He's one of those actors that they, there's no effort; he's just one speed.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's got that monotone voice.
2: Hello, like, it, Mike's it's... mother. This is <laughs> one of my favorite Simpson jokes too, where they go to like Bronson, Missouri, or something. Yeah, and they're all Charles Bronson living in this town. Have you ever seen that that gag? That's... This <laughs> isn't over.
0: Well, and that's the thing, like it, it, it works for the character. It really does. But yes. you know, yeah, he's, he definitely has one speed. It's kind of jarring when he actually yells at his son-in-law later. It's like, oh, wait, whoa, you, you didn't do that for the rest of the movie. Calm down there, killer. You know, it's like, it's a little jarring, but uh, they arrive back in New York city and get settled into their daily routine. The next day we see Paul at work, which is where we find out he's an architect uh, where his buddy informs him about the insane amount of murders that happened while he was gone. 15 the first week and 21 the next. So 36 people were killed while Paul was on vacation. Um, Through talking to his coworkers, we find out that Paul is rather liberal and disagrees with his co-workers' view on the city. So his co is one of those guys that's like, ah, you should throw them all in a concentration camp. Like, he's eh, rather gross. Yeah, um, pretty over the top. Yeah, and, and Paul is kind of just like, you know, I don't believe that like that's the wrong way of thinking. So we get a little bit of his political views here. Um, So now we cut to a grocery store where we see Joanna and her daughter, Carol shopping Uh, a couple of goons, Jeff uh, uh, two goons and Jeff Goldblum (laughs) run around the store like assholes, making a mess of the place and buying some beer and spray paint. Joanna buys her groceries and asks for them to be delivered to the apartment. The goons watch her get the address from the tag on the groceries and follow behind. Now, I'm sorry. This part I find comical because they're not quiet, and they're not that far behind them. They're just like whooping and hollering and like running, like like literally like feet slapping the pavement, and then stopping like five feet behind and be like, "Where do you think they're going?" Like just it's this comical following scene. And there's a running theme here that starts in this scene. Why do we constantly see nuns anytime Carol's around?
2: To hammer yeah. away how saintly she is. <laughs>
0: like, seriously, did you guys notice that? Like, There's yeah. like three scenes where Carol's involved and nuns walk through the scene.
2: It's yeah. very misogynistic the way they treat women in the movie. Oh, God, yeah. And it's from a male's perspective. So you've got that... I think it was Freud that had that, uh, you know, either she's a saint or she's a slut of the two types of women in the film. So you have his wife... And his daughter, who are associated with nuns, perfect beans in the seventies. And then the rest of the women you meet in the movie are hookers.
0: I didn't even notice that, but you're not wrong. <laughs> like a lot of the other women, mm-hmm. yeah. Like the other women we see are are hookers.
2: I think the only other female character you meet is later on is the woman with the hairpin, the hatpin. Yeah, and and like there's
0: one cop in the in the scene yeah. where they're where Mushnick is talking to his crew.
2: But they're they're inconsequential.
0: That's interesting. I didn't wow, okay. I didn't pick up on that at all.
2: but uh, good catch. so they they make their way back
0: to the apartment. The goons follow, and uh, they get to the Kerseys door and pretend that to be from the delivery service from the grocery store. So Carol opens the door. They bust in, demand money when they find out that all they have between them is a couple of bucks. they beat the hell out of Joanna and rape Carol. This entire scene is fucking disturbing. It's very hard to watch. It's, the stuff that's being said. Like, I'm not going to repeat any of the shit that they were saying. It's it's also unsettling to hear Jeff Goldblum say some of this stuff. It's like, ah, no. <laughs>
2: like Very un-Jeff goldblum And I'm very, very happy that this was all he... As far as I know, this is, like, the beginning and the end of his, like, dipping his toe into, like, David Hess kind of creepiness. Um, There was...
0: What is it? St. Ives, I think it is. There's another movie he did with Charles Bronson. I think it's St. Ives. Well, I hope uh, Charles Bronson got to kill him in that one. You know, it's been so long. I, I honestly don't remember if he dies or not. But it's, uh, yeah, it's it's very uncomfortable. Um, they, like, the, the, the spray paint guy is, like, spray painting swastikas on the wall. He spray paints Carol's ass. Like, it's just, everything is really uncomfortable in this sequence. But they end up uh, beating Joanna half to death and then, uh, like, taken off. So
2: they escape. And this was um, also kind of par for the course in seventies exploitation films. So, oh yeah. as you mentioned before, you've got Last House on the Left. Um, I spit on your grave. I spit on your grave. All like they call her One Eye. Mm-hmm. All of what? those like exploitative, mean to women revenge films.
0: There was one. I'm, I'm probably I'm probably remembering the name wrong. I feel like it was called Rape Squad or something like that. Probably. Where it was a bunch of women who had been raped at, like, different points in their lives. And they got together. I want to say it was, like, a support group. And instead of, like, you know, trying to work through it, you know, through psychology, they're like, fuck it. Let's get some weapons, lure a bunch of these fuckers out of the woodwork, and kill them. And I remember it being, like, a cool revenge flick, but also obviously upsetting subject matter. But, like, very much like I Spit on Your Grave, where the revenges
2: are pretty awesome. Um, Could I pitch a Boogeyman's Closet theme? <laughs> if it's Rape Month, hell no! <laughs> no, 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 no! Pissed off women.
0: Oh yeah, no, I'd be down with that.
2: Because <laughs> there's a lot of good No books. Fury. Yeah. Yes. Ooh, I a like woman that. scorned. There you go. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, there's, there's a lot of, of like crazy ex-lover. Yeah, you'd have like the rape revenge films because some of them are really good, despite. The rape elements, and you could have like, uh, have you ever seen Lady Terminator?
0: <laughs> yes. There you go. I have. I have a friend who is obsessed with that movie. <laughs>
2: um, or if you want to tie in, we could do that. Like the Dumpster Fire Theater could be Lady Terminator because I'm probably the only one that's going to vote for that. Um, I was
0: going to say, yeah, I could. I could see us doing that on Dumpster Fire Theater
2: because Snake is one of the greatest characters ever. Anyways. <laughs>
0: No, I like the idea uh, of doing a month of, you know, uh, Hell Hath No Fury, like, you know, like a woman scorned. I think that that's a that's a pretty good idea because there there are some really good ones. Plus, there are movies like You're Next, where it's like they think, you know, the woman's going to be all meek and mild and she fucking comes out kicking ass. And like, those are great films too. Uh
2: Burning Bed. Yep. Yep. This is probably stuff for the Patreon. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, no. no. <laughs> hey, no, I'm keep I'm keeping it in. Fuck it. Um... it <laughs> I think it's interesting.
2: This is this week's meander, brought to you by Jerry's Closet for all your one-stop shopping needs in Aurora, New York. <laughs> <Indeed>. Cheap plug. <laughs>
0: nice. nice. Got to get the, <laughs> those Rad Pantheon plugs in. Um <laughs> to <just the> <laughs> So, um, I, I was
1: going to say one thing about the actual the actual scene. <laughs> we keep going off on these tangents about other movies. Um, <laughs> But I, I, you mentioned that you know the movie or the scene is disturbing, which it totally is, and it's definitely like an exploitation flick. Although I think in general the sequels are really more exploitation. I don't know that this one really falls as much into the same genre because, as you mentioned before, so much of the movie is about Paul – going through that arc and choosing, you know, to, to take this life, uh, this life path. But really it's a movie about the problem of, of street crime and, and vigilantism and, you know, being safe in big cities. And it's really like a spotlight, uh, you know, on sort of like the social situation. But I noticed this time watching this movie and granted, I haven't seen this movie in decades, honestly, but I noticed that, there were there were that this sequence in the scene with you know the freaks attacking the the wife and the daughter it clearly was cut from a longer scene there are some really really jumpy edits uh, so there's, there, there's a, there's a point where the freaks just kind of added nowhere, like, Oh shit, let's get out of here. And there's not really anything that instigates them to suddenly change their mind. And then, yeah. you know, spoiler alert for a couple of minutes later, like we find out that his wife dies and it's like, wait, they like knocked her over and kicked her in the head. Like, what did she die from? You know? And yeah, I, I feel like there was a, probably a much more brutal sequence that they filmed and then Decided not, you know, to to do that, or perhaps you know the MPAA made him edit it out or whatever. But they clearly made it less disturbing, which is kind of frightening to think about what it originally would have been.
0: Yeah, no, and and you're right about that jump cut because they're like she's going for the phone, and then like they kick her, and like we see that's when Jeff Goldblum pulls up his pants. He's like, ah, right, let's get out of here, and they take off, and it's like, wait, well, wait, wait, what? What? Why? Why? What? Like, what happened there?
2: So yeah. As- and you're- you're As a right. father of a daughter, I'd mm-hmm. like to go back forty-nine years and thank them.
3: Yeah, for oh yeah, that
2: that was enough. But also, it kind of fits in the theme of his daughter goes to the the asylum, the nunnery later mm-hmm. on in the film because she just has hysterics, like she's catatonic. Yeah. So, going by that logic, his wife could have just you know died via shock. Yeah, I and mean the movie would justify that that
0: way. The Revenge of the Sith death. She yeah. died from a broken heart. Um, actually, I know we're we're we we keep getting off topic here, but I gotta say the one thing that really bothers me about about part two is what they do to Carol in that one,
2: because oh, it's horrible.
0: like, it, it. I mean, really, like the we already see her go through this horrible scene, and what happens to her mentally throughout the rest of the film, but then in part two they. They introduce her just to be like she's she's the woman in the refrigerator. She's basically oh we need something to spur Paul back to doing what he was doing. So yeah, have his daughter get raped again and 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 kill herself. Like Jesus yeah. Christ! Like it's, it's horrible.
2: It's the sequel problem of like how can we get Paul back to the place where the paying customer wants them? Yeah, as quickly as possible, plot or character be damned. Yep, and it's, know, it it's that. the Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers like. Does it make sense that these kids go camping at that lake that 15 teenagers were killed at two <laughs> days ago? No, exactly. Well, we got to get him back there because Jason's got to kill more people because we got to make more money. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, so I don't lump the sequels in with the original for this like Rocky. Yeah, yeah. I kind of see like parts two, three, four and five as just your grandpa's in an action movie. And like, what kind of ridiculous shit can we make up to have Charles Bronson go batshit crazy and kill people in awesome, hilarious ways? And let's make these goons very memorable and goofy, like the Giggler. Yeah. This first one is very much like a good film that did the action and the revenge so well. That's all people remember, unfortunately. Yeah. Charles Bronson's so good at his job (laughs) in this that it kind of pulls your eyes away from the bigger plot. And as, like, a middle-aged white guy or a little kid with his father who's like, look at this, he's getting that guy with the gun, you miss it every single yeah. time. Um, so, I mean, thankfully I was uncomfortable on the couch. I don't know what it was, but I watched it critically for the first time ever instead yeah. of just watching Charles Bonson blow people away. And if you want that, there's 15 other movies in this film catalog, at least, Oh yeah. that give you the exact same thing. <laughs>
0: Hell, there's there's four sequels in this <laughs> in this franchise that give you that. So. Yeah, and a remake. That's true, and the remake ain't bad. Like <laughs> a lot of people shat all over it because, unfortunately, when it came out, there was a lot of gun violence <laughs> happening, so people were crapping all over that movie. But I, I saw it in the theater, and it was pretty damn good. Like it was it was a very competent remake.
2: My problem with these movies is that we know Bruce Willis is an action star. Yeah. We know Charles Bronson is an action star, but at least he's older mm-hmm. and it's a little more believable. I would need a dramatic actor that I don't see as an ass kicker to believe it more like. I would rather see Jim Carrey. I, or, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Yeah. Who's somebody that isn't known for gunplay in movies? Harry Potter, you know, <laughs> later this month.
1: Yep. Um yes.
2: Or even it's not not
1: exactly the, the right type of genre, or the it's not the same genre, I should say, but the type of like almost miscast actor that really just kind of proves that they have the chops. I mean, you we've seen both Robin Williams and uh, and uh, Adam Sandler do like serious dark roles that they just yeah. kicked ass in.
0: Yeah, no, that's 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 a good point. But again, like the way Bruce Willis plays it, like he he does very similar to how Charles Bronson plays it in this. And you know, like, yeah, it's a little more celebratory on the violence. It's a little more in line with the sequels in that regard, but it definitely has you know the the right tone. So he's for, squinty
2: and he's bald, and he goes, "I'm an architect." <laughs>
0: <laughs> Actually, I think he was a doctor in that one. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's and and thankfully the uh, the sequence that that we just covered in this uh, isn't nearly as graphic or bad. Uh, in the remake, it's it's bad. It's bad enough, but it's not as bad. So it's like, okay, it's a little bit, a little bit easier to watch than this one.
2: Can I take but, us off topic one more time? Sure. On the topic of how can we get how how action movies like to do like how can we have the hero just be justified in his violence? Like, what's going to be that thing that sets him off? Like, are we going to kidnap Alyssa Milano? To make <laughs> John Matrix come out of retirement. And then just mow down an entire island of people. Love it.
1: So Yes, please.
2: <laughs> there is a Chuck Norris film. My favorite Chuck Norris film. Outside of maybe sidekicks. Called Lone Wolf McQuaid. Oh,
3: yeah. Where
2: mm-hmm. he is this unstoppable Texas Ranger killing machine. That pretty much brushes off. Uh, David Carradine is the villain. Brushes off all this drug dealing violence. Until they kill his dog. And then he snaps and goes like full blown Chuck (laughs) Norris. And it's funny, like, cause you're watching it as a guy and you're like, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Like they blow up his house. They kill his girlfriend. He's like, meh, mm, I'm retirement. (laughs) You know, like he's not, he like, he kind of reacts, but like once his dog gets hurt, that's when he's like, motherfuckers are going to die. Yeah. And he just goes full blown, ridiculous action hero of the eighties where I got a machine gun and I'm going to wave it left and right. and all the bad guys (laughs) in the hill in the background are going to fall down and die. King.
0: Again, that that scene with Arnie and Commando, where he's just holding an M60, walking through the island, just mowing <laughs> fuckers down. And
2: if you want that, watch all of the sequels to Death Wish. Yes. Well, we killed his daughter. Who we can kill his best friend. Yeah. Uh, let's let's blow up his mailbox. You know, like, what's <laughs> left to piss him off? Let's I, rearrange his furniture.
0: <laughs> see, now that's the movie I want to see. I want to see like a man who has been like. He's lost everything, you know, have have everything be taken from him and then just have something like they they gave him a parking ticket or something, something dumb. And he's like, "Ah, I can't take it anymore and just starts killing everybody.
2: (laughs) Go John Wick on everybody. Can you imagine, Josh, that like the meter reader comes into your house? Do you have meters (laughs) in your house or outside your house? Outside. Let's pretend that your gas is in your house. Goes into your house and he rearranges your comic books. (laughs) He must die. Like can you imagine that sequence of like you hear fortunate son in helicopters and you like open up a panel on a wall mm-hmm. and there's a machine gun and you're rubbing the the black camouflage face paint. Yeah. Uh, just ready to murder people. Exactly. It would be it would be like a like an instructional video. <laughs> yeah. Like he pulled all of the number fours out of your comic book boxes and put them somewhere else
0: oh that's that's yeah that fucker's gonna die for that
1: oh, it's bad it's bad <laughs> enough that i realized all my gen 13 books were in the wrong order the other day i'm like who's been in here
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice oh shit well uh back to the movie um <laughs> so after that entire disturbing sequence uh paul gets a call for uh, at his office from his son uh, son-in-law jack who tells him that Joanna and and Carol have been brought to the hospital. He doesn't know the details, but he'll meet him there. So Paul rushes over to the hospital. Jack fills him in on what he knows. And this is where we see how bad of an actor he is. Um, And they're made to wait, only to find out that Joanna didn't make it and has died.
1: Okay, I'm sorry. I don't want to keep interrupting, but this this is the scene I've been waiting for you to mention, right? Because this is the perfect example of the fucking terrible acting in the movie. Right here, you mentioned it, but when... Yeah, when Paul gets to the hospital, he's so like calm and low key and almost like he's he's so patient, but, like he almost doesn't care. It's like Charles Bronson is not emoting in any way, but mm-hmm. then his like son-in-law, which is named Tony or Toby or whatever, um he he is acting the lines from the script, but he's not reacting to Charles Bronson. So Charles Bronson yes. is like, you know, like, you know, like a uh, you know, what's going on here? Whatever he's, and then Toby turns and is like, well, don't yell at me, dad. Yeah. no is <laughs> yelling at you, dude. Like, you're, it's like, you can't just act in a vacuum. Like you have to like <laughs> react to the other people in the scene with you, you know? And it's, it's like, but also Charles Bronson isn't giving anything. So it's so don't. imbalanced that it's comical.
0: And that's in every scene with the two of them together.
1: Like it's,
0: it's horrible.
2: And yeah, like, <laughs> At what point did the director say, like, you guys don't work together well. Let's clearly, get rid clearly of the Golan and Globus
0: here. were like, fuck that guy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It must have, yeah. It must have been like, this is my cousin. You're going to put yep. him in the movie. He's going to be in the pitches.
0: <laughs> but
2: after, so
0: after we find out she died, we cut to Joanna's funeral where we see that Carol is like a zombie. She's very heavily sedated and and she's trying to, you know, obviously deal with the trauma she suffered. So we cut to Paul showing up at the police station later to see if anyone is found. Go back
2: for one second. I love that scene (laughs) Mm -hmm. because it's in the winter. It's actually in the snow. Yeah. That's New York snow. (laughs) Well, they say it's Connecticut. They went
0: to Connecticut to bury his wife.
2: It's real. That's all that matters to me, which is something (laughs) you never get in movies because it's so difficult to shoot in the snow. Yep. And they just do it just kind of punctuates the whole like the somberness of it. Oh, Even though, like, you're not getting a lot of emotion out of Charles Bronson, but um,
0: well, or anyone in that scene, because Carol's is acting like a zombie at that point, and Jack is just standing next to her, like,
2: oh, I gotta go home, Dad.
0: Uh, well, well have to take Carol home.
2: Girl emotions, right? That's what they do.
0: <laughs> yeah, they just <laughs> totally shut down, turn into. Yeah, they
2: just kind of like stare into space and drool for like <laughs> two weeks a month. <laughs> and,
0: it was also very unsettling because Charles Bronson went to go kiss her, and he kissed her awfully close to the mouth. I'm like, that's, yeah, that's that's not that's
2: not okay, buddy. <laughs> like, Way to go, Chucky.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so we yeah we cut to Paul at the police station trying to find out if anyone has heard had uh, found out anything about the attackers. Uh, we overhear a woman talking about being mugged, and in almost every scene, like from here on out, th- with uh with with Charles Bronson's character with Paul. We see some kind of street violence or hear about it. It's either on the news, in the newspaper, he's seeing it out a window, he's seeing it on the street, he overhears someone talking about it, so it's constantly surrounding him from this point forward. He's, he's very tuned in to the amount of violence happening in the city, which I think is kind of a key element. Like, I think that's kind of what's slowly pushing him further and further over. Uh, but we do get this wonderful <laughs> background dialogue where there's this guy listening to a radio on his shoulder. The cop tells him to calm it down. And he goes, why haven't you found my dog yet? He's vital to my income. He paints such wonderful pictures with his paws. And it's like, what? <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> it's such a random moment. I love it. But the detective tells him that basically, basically everything that we already know, like how the goons got the address, you know, blah, 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 that his son-in-law wouldn't let Carol look at the mugshot book because she was too upset. He also tells Paul that there's a strong chance that they'll never get these guys. Um, so we get a few quick scenes like in succession here. We see that car- we see Carol and Jack at, at their place. Jack attempts to kiss his wife on the forehead. She screams and recoils from him, clearly still traumatized. We see Paul at home looking out his window where we see a bunch of hooligans breaking into a car on the street. The next day, Paul goes to the bank, gets 20 dollars quarters, and puts them in a sock. And I was like, he's going to take on the force.
1: <laughs> right. That's what I thought, too. <laughs> sock him on his head with a sock full of quarters. <laughs> you don't know who La is.
0: <laughs> oh, God, I love that movie. But at work, Paul is given a new job or given a job where he has to go to Tucson. Uh, Paul goes to Jack and Carol's. He tells you know, he tells him about the job um jack tells him that he took uh took carol to see a psychiatrist who wants him to take her away for a while and get her away from anyone who reminds her of that day including paul so he gets a little upset you know that he can't have can't be around his own daughter but he's like you know whatever i have to go take this job he's like it'll be good for everybody so paul takes the job in tucson makes him uh, makes jack promise him to call him every other day and let him know how carol is and this entire sequence, did you guys notice the baby crying in the background?
1: Yeah. Like, Yeah, I, I did. I kept waiting for them to, I kept waiting for, like, Jack or whoever to be like, oh, hang on, I gotta go check on the baby. And then, like, right. oh, like, that's not really gonna drive the drama home. They're like, oh, shit, they have, like, a newborn. And yeah. his wife is, like, catatonic. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, Wait, is it their kid? Like, is, is Paul a
0: grandfather? Like, is that their kid? Or is it just, like, in the next apartment over? And then that made me question, like, why did they keep that in the film? Like, why did they do another shoot? <laughs> There's just a baby crying in the background, <laughs> and it's pretty loud.
1: It is, yeah. It, it it really felt like there probably was a baby on set. Like, somebody had to bring their kid to work that day because, like, the babies that are called in sick, and then they probably already filmed it a couple of times, and the baby wouldn't shut up. So the, the director was just like, "Fuck it, use it. Uh, like, move on, next." You know, <laughs> it's
0: it, it's New York. There's a baby crying. Move yeah. on but i also have to comment on this we see paul heading home he stops to pat a midget on the head <laughs> can can we just address that charles bronson did that
2: like, he's the the guy who the magazine stands
0: there's there's a little person selling magazines and newspapers and he's like "Ah, hey, you want a newspaper and paul smiles and pats him on the head like I lost
1: it. Yeah. When I was a kid, I always assumed it was a kid. And then watching it like recently,
2: I'm like, wait, that's a grown ass man. Yeah. For a second. I was like, is that deep Roy? I know. I thought the same thing. Me too.
0: Oh my God. I like, this is just one of those moments. I've seen this movie a hundred times. I never noticed that he did that. Like it just kind of went in one, you know, like just kind of viewed it and went away. Watching it critically, I noticed that I started laughing so hard I had to pause the movie. I'm like, did he just really do that? Like, okay, that's really an odd decision for your character.
2: That's just, you know, the freaks come out at night in New York City. (laughs) Right.
0: So on his way home, Paul gets mugged and he slowly turns and punches the guy in the face, forcing him to run away. He goes home and drinks to calm himself (laughs) because he's like he's shaken when he grabs that drink. And then he starts swinging his sock full of quarters around his head and bashes <laughs> it into his chair, and quarters go everywhere.
2: And his plant, he's like, "Fuck you, Hydrania. <laughs> <Right>. <ya." laughs>
0: <Like, laughs> it's like I'm gonna take you out with my sock full of quarters. So I don't know who
1: the fours is.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> but so that's kind of where Act One ends. Like we see, we see all those bad stuff happen, and Paul slowly getting edge closer and closer you know over to to becoming the vigilante that he becomes.
2: So what do, what do you guys think so far of this film? Great slow setup to kind of like let it simmer and let us understand. Yeah, because the sequels he would have already been like 10 dead bodies, Steve. Exactly. <laughs> and we would have like an up and coming actor that's very memorable would have already hurt something that Paul Kersey loves. Yep. <laughs>
0: See, that's the thing I love about this this opening is it is not the stereotypical vigilante like we don't it's it's not what you expect of a vigilante movie. It's not just bad thing happens and then I'm going to get a gun and kill everybody like it's he's being slowly edged along like he's being pushed closer and closer to becoming that vigilante. But he's not there yet. And I, I think that 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 sets this movie apart from other vigilante films. And I really enjoy that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I really liked uh, how, I actually kind of liked how slow this part of the movie is, like I said, because of the kind of giving him time to get to that place in his head. Later on, I think it's like, okay, guys, we can like speed this up, you know, like we got yeah. get a little get a little snappier here. Um but yeah, this, this is this is a really great setup. I would have preferred to see him, well, you know, emote a little bit Charles Bronson, please, you know, like, <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah, seeing him, like, break down a little bit more or, you know, have some struggles with himself. Like, this sequence you just mentioned about him, like, swinging the sock full of quarters around and, like, you know, shakily pouring himself a huge glass of whiskey is, like, the most we, we really ever get to see of him dealing with, the like, trauma in his life. But, yeah, I mean, in general, for the stoic 70s, I thought this was uh, a really, really a great start. I, I think it, it goes in a really bizarre direction next, but I'll let you yes. cue that up.
0: Well, that's the thing. With Act Two, we start off with Paul arriving in Tucson, where he meets Ames Janechill, the man that his company is doing a job for. So they go off to the build site. Ames kind of tells him about, like, we see all these rolling hills in Arizona, and basically how, uh, like, he doesn't want any of that to be leveled. He wants them to build around it. He wants the natural beauty of the land to stay. So they go. They end up going for for a drink at an old West town resort where they watch the Wild West show. And as the actors are having their fake fight, we see how it's affecting Paul. He looks both intrigued and kind of horrified, like horrified at the violence, but also kind of digging it. So we get this little montage of Paul working, surveying the land, working on the designs to Ames' specifications, yada, yada. Eventually the two end up going to a gun club where Ames teases Paul about being a big city boy who don't like guns. And we find out that, that Paul was in the Korean war uh, he was a commanding officer in a medical unit and a conscientious objector. So something a- Ames finds endlessly amusing. And that his father was killed in a hunting accident and then
2: his mother went well, over.
0: Yeah, we f- we find that out in a second because uh, Ames goes off in a diatribe about how New York City muggers run rampant. But in Tucson, everyone has a gun. So muggers don't try anything because they know they'll get their asses blown off. So he sets Paul up to, to take a couple of shots and. Paul, you know, takes shot at the target and he gets a bullseye. And this is where, you know, Ames is like, holy shit, you hit a dead center. And this is where he tells me, he grew up around guns. He's like, my father was a hunter, yada, yada. He basically talks about how he was killed in a hunting accident. Another hunter mistook him for a deer. Um, he said, so his mother basically made him promise never to touch another gun. And he said, I grew up around guns. He goes, but I loved my father. So he kind of shows like where his whole aversion to violence came from. Uh, I mean, it's 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 weak at best. Like, it's yeah. not a very well done scene, but, you know, it is what it is. So Paul finishes the job, heads to the airport with Ames. Ames slips a gift into Paul's suitcase before he leaves. And Paul heads home.
2: Ames uh, very much the devil or the angel, depending on your view. Exactly. It's ambiguous. Yeah.
0: I mean, I kind of like the character of Ames, but he he's in it so briefly, it almost seems like we didn't need that.
2: You yeah.
1: Know. yeah, that's kind of where I was getting at, too, with it taking a, a weird turn. Like, I kind of like the idea of him kind of getting out of New York and clearing his head and then coming back to New York and realizing that, like, oh, all my problems are still here. But yeah. sending him out to, like, Wild
2: West Arizona
1: was, like, a little <laughs> yeah. bit, like, too much. It's a little too over the top for how, like chill and like stayed the rest of the movie is you know it it was it was like silly you know i really yeah. like ames as a character but he's really out of place this whole sequence in arizona is really really out of place i kind of uh, like the blue state red state
0: see i like it but i also it. i think the wild west town thing was a little silly oh, yeah. you know, like like that's what's going to make him make it be like hmm yes violence can not be good
2: it's not like that out there <laughs> <laughs>
1: Now I, I do agree that sending him out to you're right, Mike. I think sending, sending him to a red state and getting him having him hear you know different perspective on dealing with like crime and and protection of your family and all that. That's exactly what the movie needed. I think at this point is what Charles Bronson's character needed. But yeah, the, I, to me it was when. I realized that Ames has not one but two sets of cow horns on his wood paneled station wagon (laughs) that I realized that like this is just a cartoon. Like they took it way too far.
0: Agreed. (laughs) But So when Paul arrives home, he finds out that Jack had to bring Carol to a hospital as she's getting worse. They're recommending committing her to a mental hospital. He goes to see his daughter and she's pretty much a vegetable. Jack has pretty much lost all hope. Back at home, Paul opens the gift from Ames to find a thirty-two Colt revolver. Um, really nice looking gun, too. Is the, the whole it's got like the pearlized handle and the nickel plate. I'm like, oh, that's that's a cool looking gun, but you know, I don't want it. But still,
2: well, cool. you know, we can solve our problems with violence and guns. Girls, they're just done.
0: <laughs> they just become hysterical, unfortunately. Yeah. You know? Oh, that was that was only in the seventies. You know, they, we got better.
2: <laughs> Isn't that what uh, the Kennedys got rid of, like half their daughters, for that? Oh God! Gave him like lobotomies because they had opinions and emotions, and they're like, we can't handle this era.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh God! Sorry.
0: (laughs) So we we cut to Paul walking the streets at night, looking for some trouble. A guy tries to mug him. Paul turns, shoots him in the gut. The the would be mugger lies on the ground, squirming, and that that was uncomfortable because he's like he's kind of coughing and grunting and holding his bleeding gut. And Paul's just like, I got to get out of here and takes off. And but this is the part I was talking about at the top that I, I love because he goes home and like falls to his knees and he's like rocking back and forth. like He can't believe what he did. He's going, oh, God, what have I done? You know, oh, Jesus, what have I done? And then he runs to the bathroom and vomits. And it's like, I feel like that was definitely necessary because we we are kind of being cavalier with the violence overall. But this scene kind of drove the point home of like, yeah, he did what he did. But he can't believe he did what he did. Like, it's not something he's like, yeah, that made me empowered. He, he felt like shit after it. So I feel like anytime you have a movie that celebrates and violence in any way, shape, or form, you need that balance. I think I would do the exact same thing. Oh, God, yeah. absolutely. Like, it's the idea. Like, I never understand that about people. I know I'm going to go off on a diatribe here for a second. But, like, I, I mentioned this before. When The Purge came out, the amount of motherfuckers that were out there, I wish they would have a Purge. It's like, shut up. No, you don't. Like, because if you're actually that cold and psychotic that you feel like you could kill a man and be happy about it, like, there's something fucking wrong with you and you shouldn't
2: be part of society. One, fuck you. Exactly. Two, you're not as badass as you think. Mm Mm-hmm. Three, you're full of shit. Yep. Like, it's
0: just, just stop. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and that's the thing, like anyone I know that has been put in a situation where they've had to defend themselves and I'm not talking kill a person, but had to defend themselves through physical violence. It's never like, yeah, I kicked the shit out of that guy. It's like, oh, my God, it was horrifying. Like, you know, it's it's never this, you know, movie Hollywood style level of violence. Everyone always walks away from those situations upset and bothered because, I mean, that's that's not part of your everyday life to hurt or harm somebody,
2: you know? I mean, I wish Putty Patrollers would just attack me randomly when I'm out with my <laughs> wife. And I could have, like, my It's Morphin Time karate fight and or a hilarious movie-style bar fight where I could run somebody down the top of a bar <laughs> at first. But it's, you're right, it's not like that.
0: Right. I'm just, I'm picturing you grabbing a putty patroller and sliding him down a bar in an old Western
3: saloon.
2: I love just to like, nobody expected it, but I am a martial arts master. <laughs> just grabbing your
0: belt buckle. It's morph time. tie. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Pants fall down. Oh, shit. But I'm, you know, the saddest Power Ranger ever. <laughs> like the khaki oh. ranger.
0: the khaki ranger. Oh my god. <laughs> that that needs to be a thing. Oh holy shit. <laughs> but who so where where was I? The the yeah, he rushes home and pukes. Okay. So yeah, and this is like we've talked enough about that, but it's basically you know, it needed to be there. Um so now we we cut to the cops along with Mr. Mushnik trying to find out who the mugger is or like looking, you know, at the the dead mugger. Um, and it turns out that the guy had a laundry list of priors. So basically they were unsure why he was killed. They're like, maybe it was a mugging gone wrong. Like, you know, he tried to mug a guy and another guy tried to mug him and they shot each other type of thing. But he's like, there was, you know, the mugger still has money in his wallet. So they're starting to think like it was some kind of revenge killing.
2: So later that night, Mr. Mushnick's ongoing weird tick of some sort of upper respiratory problem. Yeah, which carries on into the next movie pretty heavily. It's clearly like the actor wanted to have something to stand out in front of Bronson. Mm -hmm. So he's got, like, consumption. (laughs) He's like,
0: he's always hacking into a a handkerchief or he's got that weird, like, little air pump
1: that he's, like, like, pumping
0: in his mouth and in his nose. Get some fucking antibiotics.
2: Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, I assume that little air pump was like some kind of inhaler. Like he's got allergies and needs some much better medication. Yeah, he's also should probably stop just constantly chewing on the butt of an old cigar.
3: (laughs) Oh,
0: that thing looked so gross. It was just like wet and slimy looking. He just kept shoving it back in his mouth.
1: And at one point, too, he, like, takes a piece of candy from, like, Paul's house and yeah. <laughs> eats it. And then he sticks that fucking cigar back in his mouth while he's chewing on the candy. he's like, oh,
2: God, so gross and slimy. <laughs> his, breath, his breath must smell like shit.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but later that night, Paul stumbles upon a mugging while, where three guys are beating the shit out of an old man. They see what uh, They see that Paul sees them and they come after him. Paul pulls the gun, kills all three men while some jaunty jazz music plays. (laughs) Which also, we got to mention, Herbie Hancock did the music for this. Yeah, that
1: was awesome. I had no idea who he was when I was a kid, so when
2: I saw it this time, I was like, oh, that's cool. Yep. Should have been Randy Newman.
1: (laughs) Street thugs got no reason to live.
3: (laughs)
0: Oh, that's perfect.
3: <laughs>
1: uh, oh, we need the man. other Josh to sing that song because yeah. he, would, he, would, he would have ad-libbed the whole verse. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, that's perfect. So we see the cops questioning the victim, uh, but he tells them he didn't see anything. And Mr. M- M- Mr. Mushnik knows he's full of shit. He's like, I know you saw something. You're full of shit. <laughs> but did you guys notice the bad edit here? When we see the old man from the front, he's got bandages on his face, no hat. We see Mr. Mushnick and we're looking at it over the the victim's shoulder. He's got a fedora on. Then we go back to the first view where we're looking at him straight on. He doesn't have a hat on anymore.
2: (laughs) It's like the disappearing fedora. I love I just I was too distracted by his movie bandages. (laughs) (laughs) He very much
0: looked like uh, Marvin Sin City. Yeah, there's big bandages all over his face. You got
2: mug. Let's tape a diaper and a maxi pad to his face. He's good to go.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So we cut to Paul and Jack committing Carol to the sanatorium, which again, we get more marching
2: nuns throughout the scene, which is like, what's going on here? I, I kept thinking of, um, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Every time I watched this scene,
0: dude, me too.
2: Every time. <laughs> <I was> just <laughs> waiting for two brothers to walk by in the background. Who witnessed their mother's <laughs> rape. Punish. Cause if those, if that was, man, that's a crossover. I would kill the sea.
0: Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> but, over at the police station, Mr. Mushnick is trying to figure out a motive for the vigilante killings. He believes it's revenge, so he wants the homicide records checked, believing the vigilante may have had someone in his family killed by a mugger. He goes on to say uh, that the guy's a good shot, so to, to look specifically for combat veterans. That night, we see thugs getting on a subway train, making their way to, to the, the last train where Paul is, and they wait for the other passengers to get off, and they go in to attack. Paul, of course, shoots him and gets off at the next stop. Now, there's two things I love in this scene: when he shoots the the guy on the ground, and his entire body leaps up off the ground and falls back down again. Like that was some crazy acting there. And then when he shoots the guy at the end of the car, and he like throws himself against the car, rolls around like. Bleh,
3: bleh, 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 bleh.
2: You know, when I watch this scene, I always, you know, everything I hear about New York City subways is that the subway riders would just be like, meh. Right. And just like push the guy out the door and carry on with their day. <laughs>
0: exactly. But it's like, I love the overacting of these two, these two muggers when they get killed. It's fantastic. But he gets off at the next stop. People walk in and immediately start screaming like, oh, my God, there's a body. And Paul's just like, whoop, 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 and runs away. <laughs> So we cut to a news conference with the police commissioner. The news is reporting on the vigilante killings and everyone wants some answers. We pan out to see Paul and his co-workers out to dinner watching the report on television. I love how Paul has this big old shit-eating grin on his face as the commissioner urges the vigilante to turn himself in. And then the reporters ask if if it's true that the muggings have drastically gone down since the vigilante killings started. The commissioner tells them no, but then they counter with, would you actually tell us if they were? Or are you afraid it would create a rash of copycats? So we we get that little theme starting to pop up throughout the movie. Back at the police station, they're looking over the, the groceries left on the train by Paul. And uh, that Mr. Mushnick suggests that they find the location of the grocery store and then check the surrounding area for families who who live in that area who have had uh, somebody killed by a mugger. So basically trying to close in on Paul. Jack stops by Paul's place to to find him in a very chipper mood. The, you know the new the apartment's painted with uh, like this bright orange paint. He's no longer moping over what happened, and this is the scene I think Josh you had mentioned it yeah. where like you know he he's like Jack is all upset. He's like what what's wrong with you, Dad? And he's like you know can I get on with my life? You know and he kind of like snaps at him. But I got I got I got to point something out here. He asks him how do you like your liver? He's making liver and spaghetti for dinner. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> now I look I know I eat a lot of weird foods i actually like liver we we do have liver and onions occasionally around here but it's a... <laughs> fucking gross <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no. dude i've had i've had heart stew i've had kidney like i have no problem with that stuff <laughs> you're a it.
2: monster
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey man i live in texas we eat a lot of intestines and tongue
0: yeah i was gonna say i love tongue man i've I, freaking tongue tacos are awesome uh, um, <laughs> 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 and yes that can be a euphemism as well okay. um but no seriously like, like legitimately it, it's it it is good eating if if you like that type of stuff but i have never heard of anyone making liver and spaghetti like that just seems like a really weird combo like and also again it like is. how do you want your liver like who eats rare liver like that's no. <laughs> like
2: medium. Oh, I'll make it medium. You know, yeah. there's, there's, at some point, I think it's earlier when he pukes in the bathroom. Yeah. Paul Kersey has carpeted bathroom. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I hate that. Such a 70s thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, oh.
1: I love his whole 70s house. I got to say, though, I, I really like his 70s house, his whole apartment there in New York, especially after he repaints the living room with that, like, golden the color that his, yeah, that his uh, son-in-law complains about, like... You know, aside from the heavy subject matter of the movie, I really like that apartment. I yeah. Just like, you know, marveling at like, you know, just how ridiculous the decorations and everything are. But it's so far in the past now that it's like it's not not even cheesy anymore. It's just like this historical artifact, you know, right. and I really want to I really want to really stay there.
0: <laughs> it is a cool looking apartment. But that the carpeted bathroom, man, my, my grandmother, she she was a real estate agent. She moved around a lot like she she bought. A lot of houses and fixed them up and then resold them um and i can't tell you the amount of houses that she got that had a carpeted bathroom when she moved in it was so weird <laughs> like there were so many houses it's like we go over to nana's house and it's like ah carpet bathroom weird Yeah, you know, like, of course you, she'd, she'd tear you it up that, and retile yeah but... how do you keep that clean right that's what i'm saying like the amount of stank that would be trapped in that bathroom
2: <laughs> you know how many times i've gotten up in the middle of the night and i had to go to the bathroom and just shit all over the floor I mean, can you imagine <laughs> if there was carpet? Oh, Oof. God. <laughs> Thank God I have a six-year-old to blame that on. <laughs> anyway. Sitting there with,
0: with the scissors, cutting the carpet. Like, ah, oh, there's poo trapped in it. <laughs> 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 Ugh. Oh, Lord. So, yeah, so speaking of gross, with the, the, the liver and spaghetti, Um. that night we see uh, Paul is, is in a packed diner having some coffee, and there's this booger-picking prostitute next to him. She's, like, literally just digging in her nose and, like, flicking it off her fingernail. It's like, that's disgusting. But Paul goes to pay for his coffee, and two men notice the stack of bills in his wallet, so they follow Paul out. They approach him in the subway and attempt to rob him. Paul shoots the one, but the other one stabs him in the shoulder, and Paul shoots him, at. but the man gets away. So he gets shot, but he gets away. Paul gets home, cleans his wound, which is pretty gnarly considering his coat didn't have a fucking scratch on it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I love that. There's no tear in the coat whatsoever. But he's got this
2: big gash in his shoulder.
1: So That's some, quali- some quality craftsmanship on that coat.
2: Right? What it did just the, went, uh, Satan went say went, to Schwarzenegger? Watch the coat? Yep.
0: <laughs> oh, that movie. I still like that movie. But, um... So over at the hospital, we see the doctors operating on the mugger and Paul Dooley tells Mr. Mushnick that the mugger said, I got him. I caught that motherfucker. <laughs> and I laugh every time. <laughs> so the doctors tell the cops that they can't save him, that there's too much internal bleeding, citing that one of the slugs chewed up his liver. And I'm
2: like, again, with the liver, <laughs> like we just talked about liver. He should have been eating spaghetti while he delivered that line just because it would have been be <laughs> exactly. hilarious
0: but he shows them the bullets and they notice that they're more 32s. So like every victim has been shot by a 32. So dun dun dun. That's kind of the end of act 2. So what do you what do you guys think so far?
2: I like it. I like that um, it's not the well, this is 70s action. This isn't like the 80s action that would be over the top and full of one-liners. Like he's baiting these guys to come get him. Oh yeah. And then just shooting them in the gut cuz you know, he's pissed. He does it's, a lot of
0: gut shots.
2: It's a very, like, realistic take on Batman. Yeah. See, I... Yeah.
0: In this act, I I love all of the overacting of the different muggers getting shot. Because mm-hmm. every single one of them that gets shot, it's it's very much like the old West TV shows, like Rawhide or Bonanza, where it's like, you get shot and it's like, oh bah, bah, and you fall <laughs> back. You're, like, holding your chest. <laughs> My spleen. <laughs> every one of them has that... Or they like, like I said, the the subway, they roll around like, you know, just they have that like South Park death.
2: Mike, I'm not going to lie. Every time you go, I laugh my ass off inside my head. It's the funniest (laughs) sound.
0: Oh my God. That's ever since I want to say, oh God, was it, I think it was the the day before the day after tomorrow uh, episode of South Park. You see the one guy's like, global warming is coming and then they're running and the one guy falls down looking at nothing going, oh God, oh God. And then he just goes, blah, 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 blah. like that has been stuck in my brain as a death sound ever since that episode. It's just, <laughs> I love it. But but yeah, like the overacting is phenomenal with all the deaths.
1: <laughs> yeah, I really like the, again, the the change in the, the character um, arc here, like the development, because again, you would expect Paul to, you know, wallow in, you know, depression or, or, you know, whatever, or having like a guilty conscience or like a crisis of, you know, like what's he doing with his life. But he goes pretty quickly into, Hey, this is kind of fun. You know, and yeah. we see yeah. him smile and emote really for the first time in the movie. And yeah, the scenes where he's like, you know, in the diner or at the party or whatever, and he's hearing people talking about the vigilante, and he is just loving standing in the background like, haha, they don't know it's really me. Yep. And yeah, he, I, I really, I really like this take on it because. You know, as opposed to the sort of like uh, revenge vendetta that we saw in the sequels and really just like any of the other movies that that fit this, you know, uh, you know, sort of like average Joe turned vigilante genre. I like the fact that he made it's almost like he's doing it like a therapy. He's not he's not really choosing to be a vigilante for revenge because he never gets the guys who like killed his wife. Right. But it, he it's like he did it once almost like uh, like an act of passion, and then he was like, I felt kind of good, you know? <laughs> like mm-hmm. I think I'm going to do that again. And now he's just really, really enjoying himself and becoming more and more calculated. Yeah, I, I, I like that they went in that direction because, you know, again, it could have been way more cliched, but, uh, yeah, it makes me really like Paul a lot more.
2: And it's yeah. all those scenes you mentioned, the party, the things in the background, that the movie's addressing the fallout that you would have from having a vigilante. So... I don't know if it's coming up or it already happened. He goes to that really crowded party. Yeah, it's coming up. And a character says, like, this is racist, which yep. ultimately this is what would happen. You would you never have a responsible vigilante and it would quickly turn into racism because you're gonna be crime is disproportionately people of color. Mm-hmm. But then somebody in the background's like, Well, what, you want us to have more white muggers so it's fair? Yeah. You know, and they, they address it. They're not ignoring it. They're like, there's yeah. a problem. You yep. know, and they acknowledge it. And then yeah. you also have the cops saying there's a scene where there's a powwow with Mr. Mushnick and the district attorney saying, like, we don't need a plague of vigilantes. Yep. Which starts to happen in the background of the movie as well. All while Paul Kersey's addicted to the violence. Yeah. he likes the way he feels. So that's what you notice if you're not just watching it for Charles Bronson. Yeah.
0: And then, like 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 we said at the top, like this movie handles that really well. Like, yes, there are moments of hamfistedness, of course, you know, because again, it's a, it's a '70s action film, but it's handled pretty deftly for the most part, and and I appreciate that. But uh, but speaking of all that, we we cut to Paul uh, Act Three. We see Paul at home watching the news, reporting on his work, uh, and we also see how his actions have exp- inspired other New Yorkers to fight back. We see a little old lady who fought off her attackers with a hat pin and then some construction workers who stopped a mugging and, quote unquote, roughed the suspect up a little. The reporter goes on to, uh, to say that the mugger had two broken arms, a broken jaw and cracked ribs, to which the foreman goes, oh, no kidding.
1: Jeez, the poor guy must have fall down. Like, that, <laughs> that, that cracked me up. I know. I love that. I think that might be the funniest line of dialogue in the movie. It's, a, it's the only time that I really like laughed out loud.
0: The poor guy must have fallen down. That's
1: great. <laughs> and, he, and he just stares right into the camera, like, cha- yep. you know, challenge me. What? What are you
0: going to do? What are you, you going to do? You almost need that, like, kind of music yeah. in the <laughs> 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 But we, uh, we see the police station. Mr. Mushnick and the gang are narrowing down their options and getting closer and closer to Paul. We cut to Paul at a fancy party where this is the scene where you're talking about everyone's talking about the vigilante. You know, he's clearly pleased with his work. And we have that back and forth where they're they're talking about the, the vigilante must be racist because he's killing disproportionately more black people than white people. And, you know, then we get that that commentary back and forth on the whole street crime thing.
2: The most uncomfortably crowded
0: party I've ever seen in my life. Oh, dude, I was getting so claustrophobic when he was you going can't up even walk up the stairs. Yep. I would have went out on the balcony too. shit. I wouldn't want to be in there. I would have just yep.
1: walked in and left. <laughs> like, eh, nope. <laughs> I'm out. But after the last couple of years, though, there was part of me that was like, oh, remember when people used to just fucking crowd in to like attic
2: parties? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And I, just, I was like, where's your mask, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: Exactly. And <laughs> so awesome. people
2: get chicken. People get monkey pox. Monkey pox. <laughs> We're back
0: to the monkey pox. But yeah, no, that those kind of parties, man, that I don't know that I could do that again. I really don't know that I could. I never liked them. I mean, I was never super comfortable at them, especially because I'm not one of those people that likes to be, like, overheated. I always joke saying I'm built for the Arctic. You know, I'm like, I can't handle hot weather. So being in, like, a crowded room with a bunch of people, I get, like, claustrophobic and overheated. But, yeah, now,
2: after COVID and everything, yeah, I don't know that I could. Yeah, realistically speaking, I'm more built for the thing (laughs) less (laughs) for Death Wish.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So meanwhile, Mushnik and his men have found out about what happened to Paul's family and that the muggers gained entrance by posing as delivery boys from the grocery store that they were looking to find the location of. So they've narrowed it down to like Paul might be their suspect. So they wait for Paul to leave. Mushnik sends one of his men to tell him and then he and another break into Paul's place and search for clues because, you know, that's totally legal detective work.
2: Yeah. And right? eat his food, smoke a cigar <laughs> go through his underwear drawer, <laughs> like right. world's worst police police work right I, I well, love- especially oh. since like they, they already had the grocery
1: bag from the uh from the subway train scene earlier, right? So they could have taken his fucking fingerprints, right? right. <laughs> they're sitting there trying they're trying to narrow this guy down while Mushnick is, he's like holding court with like a hundred cops crowded <laughs> around him in the fucking uh, station, you know, listening. Like, you could drop a fucking pin in that room. It's so quiet. They're like, hang on his every word while he's explaining how they're going to investigate to find out who this guy is. And I'm just like yelling at the screen, like, take the fingerprints from the bag. Because so then- You get
2: fingerprints uh, off even of if,
1: a paper bag? Well, Probably. if not the paper bag, then like he he was also sitting in the subway and like there's poles, there's all kinds of surfaces that they could have like pulled the fingerprint off of, you know, to cross reference. But my point is, even if he's not in some kind of like criminal database from having a previous record, they might not have his fingerprints on file. But then when they narrow it down, they're like, oh, we think it might be this guy. And instead of breaking into his fucking house, you just take... Take the fingerprints off the doorknob or something. Like, Christ. To try to match it. Match it to the bag. Boom, boom. Bing, bang, boom. I, I like Mr. Mushnick
2: coming into his house, taking his shit on his toilet, not flushing, and then calling it detective work. <laughs> yeah.
1: well, he, he also took the fucking
0: bandage out of the garbage and sniffed it. Why did he sniff it?
2: Because he's a creep and he thought it was a woman's.
3: Oh, God. Uh, oh.
2: No? Okay. <laughs> Ugh. That's just you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, I mean, in reality, it's way, way more entertaining to watch, you know, him break into the dude's house and, like, be a creeper, you know, and a completely inappropriate cop. And then, you know, go and, like, preach about police work to all these dudes. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, at the same time, it's like, this could have been over, like, days previously if they had done, like, you know, actual realistic police work.
0: But, like, yeah, he does. I mean, he breaks in dude's house. Sniffs his bloody bandages, eats some candy, goes through his magazines and newspaper. Just like he's just hanging out. And what's even worse is in the sequel, when he does it to Paul's girlfriend, he passes out in her house. So like he goes to her apartment, he breaks in, same way he did in this one, and he's just like passed out in her chair. So she comes home and she's like, she screams. She's like,
1: oh, I'm a cop. It's okay. It's like, Wait, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it's fine.
0: Oh, uh, but one thing I also got to comment on is Hank, the guy who uh, Mushnik sent to follow Paul. I love how not subtle he is. So Paul's walking, you know, like walking down the street and Hank is just like running behind him like pushing people out of the way. <laughs>
2: Hank <laughs> it's with like, his ridiculous handlebar mustache.
0: Yep. His freaking trench coat's billowing behind him. It's like, dude, could you be subtle? You're tailing this guy. He's like, "Hey, hey, slow down. I can't keep up." Like it's just like, Jesus, dude. But so we we cut to to Mushnick meeting with the police commissioner and the district attorney. We find out a few things here that they match the blood samples from the knife and the bandages that they took from uh, from Paul's apartment. And they're pretty sure that Paul is their guy. Uh, Muggings have dropped drastically by several like several hundred a week. Um, If they release that information, they'll have imitators on the streets killing anyone. I love it because he goes, we'll have them killing anyone who even looks greasy. Like, Which is everybody in this movie. I yeah. was going to say, it's New York. <laughs> like, everybody looks greasy. But if they arrest Paul, he becomes a martyr, and again, we get imitators. So they want him to stop on his own. They tell Mushnik not to arrest him, but to try to scare him off. So Mr. Mushnik calls Paul at work and just says, Mr. Kersey, you're under police surveillance. You're being watched, and then hangs up. So Paul stashes his gun at work and heads home. The cops stop him, aggressively frisk him, and find nothing. Mushnik is pleased, thinking they've successfully scared him. So Mushnik and Hank wait outside Paul's apartment building, watching to see if he comes out on the streets. Paul sees this and leaves out the back. Mushnik gets sick of waiting and tells Hank to go call Paul's number to make sure he's still there. We get this wonderfully comical moment where Hank is running from payphone to payphone around New York City trying to find one that works. I
2: fucking <laughs> love that. Was the implication that Paul fucked up all the phones or that it's just that they're trashed and it's New York City?
0: I think it's just they're trashed in New York City because he's like – it reminded me of the another yeah. door scene in Killer Clowns. where Okay, yeah. Like, another door, another – it's like, ah, damn, another broken phone? Another broken phone? Like, it just <laughs> –
1: very funny, and, and then and he finally like uh, he pushes that one dude out of the way to like use the phone, and then like that like very very typical like New Yorker guy, New Yorker, like he stands there with his girlfriend, just like ah oh, this fucking guy with the phone, you know, like, <laughs> like a,
0: he said he's a cop, but I don't see a fucking badge. Where's his fucking badge?
1: <laughs> I, I could have listened to those two for like ten minutes, just 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 <laughs> bitching in this very. Typical, like, uh, New York 70s kind of way, but the fucking nerves of this guy. <laughs> I
0: a, a, this man, have
2: a very gross confession.
0: Uh-oh. I
2: have to check every payphone I find in the wild to see if it still works.
0: <laughs> I mean. If- and they're
2: disgusting, but I'm always just, like, morbidly curious. Like, do these still work? Like, they don't. They're all dead now. Yeah. But I still have to pick it up, like, out of curiosity. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I won't say what it was because I don't want it. It would be a spoiler for like relatively new TV show. But there was a a scene in a recently released show where a character talks on the phone on a payphone, but it's like a modern day show. And I, 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 I had to pause it and at the risk of spoiling it for myself, I had to like Google like what year it was supposed to take place in (laughs) because I was like, wait, it is this like a period piece or something? Like why is there a fucking payphone? Like this is a modern show. It's so weird to think like.
0: How that was just that was the norm for for decades. Just yeah. like, you know, you had to find a payphone. You had to have a quarter. <laughs>
2: it's like it's one eight hundred collect, you know, oh, yeah. receiving a call from bomb, pick me up. <laughs> yep.
1: Dial straight down the center eight zero zero. Oh my god, I forgot about that.
0: But yeah, like it it's it's weird. Anytime I, I see a movie or or TV show that has like payphone in it, it definitely is a jarring moment of just like this is a time capsule. You know, this this is a thing that's long, but like it's a relic, you know, that like again, our kids don't really know about. You know, they might know of payphones, but that's not something they're gonna experience in the same way we did. Our kids will
2: never experience sex lines. <laughs> <Shame>. <laughs> well, they got the internet, they don't need that. ah, that's a joke.
0: <laughs> but no, they they'll never know the joy of like seeing a payphone and reaching into the receiver to
2: find a quarter that someone forgot. I know, man. That's the best thing ever. Because then it's like up oh, going to the gumball machine. Another yep. thing right. that's not around anymore, really. Exactly. <laughs> I used. To, I
0: remember doing that in the summer park mall, like checking all the payphones and occasionally finding quarters, and then going to Aladdin's castle and playing video games.
1: Yeah. Yep. Same here. That's uh, <laughs> An- every kid in Niagara Falls in the eighties An- and
0: early nineties. Another thing that's not around: video arcades.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> you guys, can I share something funny? Sure. So. Mike, you know, Josh, you don't really know. My daughter's addicted to uh, like arcades, like claw machine, ticket type arcades.
1: Oh, yeah. And my, my my
2: son is, too. My wife took her to Dave & Buster's today. So they're at Dave & Buster's while I'm on this podcast right now. And my daughter is exceptionally good at these claw machines. Nice. And ticket games. They just sent me a picture. She's three and a half feet tall. This giant stuffed pickle rick that she won has to be five (laughs) feet tall nice so she somehow got a jackpot somewhere and took her winnings and got a giant pickle rick she's never seen rick and (laughs) morty but she's in this fucking pickle rick is gonna hang around the house forever (laughs) and drive me crazy
0: and i can see right now it's
2: full of styrofoam oh Oh, yeah one of of those stuffed animals yep (laughs)
1: Oh man, yeah, it it occurred to me or someone mentioned to me a couple of years ago and I like I could not believe I never realized it before that like fucking Chuck E Cheese is just like a casino for kids, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they they get that like serotonin rush. Yeah, I wouldn't say that my like my, my kids are like addicted to it, but uh Tegan is exceptionally good at claw machine games, uh especially with like stuffed animals. And it pisses my son Griffin off so much because he's like, he doesn't have that skill, but he wants those stuffed animals that Tegan doesn't really care that much about anymore. You know? Right. Um, so now Griffin has realized, he has gotten a lot better at it. And we have a, a little like bowling alley slash arcade place here in town, that, like really close to us uh, that we go to. And, they have giant uh, claw machines where it's like a, you know, it's huge and, you know, where it's like a couple of bucks for a play and you can, in the claw machine, you can get, you know, like a bouncy ball. That's like, you know, the the wingspan of my son, like he can barely hold it. And he has gotten really, really good at the giant claw machine somehow. And I, he's like the, one of the only people I've ever seen actually successfully do it. And he can do it like two, three, four times in a row. And you to see the look of the other kid's, on their faces at the <laughs> at the spare time arcade, just like jaws dropped, like motherfucker, as Griffin is just walking away with all of the like stuffed animals and giant bouncy balls and stuff.
2: That's awesome. Shit that just sits in front of the television. Yeah. Oh, God, or yeah, like yeah. gets on the couch. So when you want to sit down at night and <laughs> relax for a half an hour before bed, you've got that eight foot in diameter giant prickly <laughs> ball. <laughs> Yeah, your kid doesn't need it's just like that trophy hunter. Of, like, yep. <laughs> I had to have it.
1: Shit, I mean, <laughs> I think we can all uh, we can all relate to that. We all have shit that we collect. That's like, did you really need that? Is that was that really like critical yeah. to your existence? You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> I,
0: actually, I actually just got one in the mail today that I'm like, I, I probably didn't need to pre-order that, but you know. <laughs> when
1: okay. I was a kid, it was always the foam nunchucks. Yep. Uh, yeah, for me, it was always like the little wooden uh, bow and arrow, like the suction cup. Uh, oh, arrows. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that was great. my that was my favorite thing to win or to get as like a prize. But uh, I
2: know. Shut up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you already dumb. have like I already have like four four other ones that are broken that are still in the closet. But I'm getting <laughs> another one.
0: <laughs> I, I have to I know we're way off topic, but I, I have to mention this. You mentioned the foam nunchucks and I have this this hilarious memory of I was in elementary school. And this kid I used to know, AJ, he uh, he had th- they were like the the ones that had the hollow plastic in the center of the foam. Yeah. So they like they were kind of like they were pliable, but like they had a little bit of weight to them. And we were playing with them on the playground. And he just looked at our other friend, Jeff, who was like about maybe eight feet away. And he just fucking hucked these nunchucks at him. And Jeff turned just in time to like get him caught in the face. And he's just like, dude, what the fuck? And then AJ just ran away. (laughs) And like, in my mind, I can still see this entire thing playing out. Like him throwing the plastic nunchucks, Jeff turning, getting hit in the face and being like, dude, what the fuck? And like, no comment. No, it was just like that. It was like the birth of the chicken lady that what did you do? And the dude just runs off into the night. AJ just (laughs) ran down the street like, oh, shit, I'm going to get in trouble. Run away, run away. Oh, it's yeah. So it's, it's like memory unlocked as soon as you said nunchucks. I'm like, oh, my God. I remember that.
1: It's, well, it's actually funny because I just realized <laughs> I turned and I'm like, oh, shit. On my desk right now that Griffin left for me here to fix because the little plastic chain broke is like a, uh, a foam uh, morning star, like a plushy morning star <laughs> that he got as a prize <laughs> from one of those giant claw machine things.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Mine, uh, this Mike, you, you have like a 60-minute podcast here. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I won uh, in Rochester. We had Our, our arcade was called Putt-Putt Golf and Games. It's like a mini golf course, but they have like the inside with the tickets and skee ball and all that. Mm-hmm. I got a recorder, you know, like the little plastic yep. flute you have to play for music. And that's what I decided to get with my tickets. And it's the 80s and Saturday and Sunday mornings, your parents are just sleeping in and you get up and watch TV. So mm. I decided to
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
2: In my bedroom, start playing the recorder with my parents <laughs> down the hallway. So as a kid, I get up at like six in the morning and I have vivid memories of my dad kicking my bedroom door open, butt ass naked, <laughs> ripping the recorder out of my hands and snapping it over his knee and throwing it on the floor and going back to bed. Because I was like <laughs> pie pipering around my room. <laughs> Fuck yeah, and parent of the year over there. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, I think we all have one of these days we'll have to talk about this. I'm I'm sure we all have those memories of like being a stupid kid and waking up your dad or waking up your mom and like the the consequences thereof. Because we I have some hilarious stories about me and my brother playing frickin Mortal Kombat on the
1: Sega Genesis and getting too loud. And yeah, there's there's some very funny stories there. Yeah. My mom used to work the night shift when I was like seven, eight, yep. nine years old at the hospital. And yeah. And so my brother and I were like latchkey kids. We'd She would be there, but she'd be asleep. So we'd come in yep. and let ourselves in and we had to be like super quiet. You know, just turn the TV on like low volume and sit right in front of it. Uh, but yeah, if we ever woke her up, it was like, that was your ass. <laughs> you <know>? oh, yeah,
0: <laughs> like, No, that's and that's honestly something Caleb could relate to because, you know, now that he's on summer break, it's like, you know, I come home from work. I got to go to bed. So it's like, all right, volume down, no yelling. Like, you, you play your games, watch TV, whatever. You know, if you go to the park with your friends, like, you know, make sure you have your keys with you, all that kind of stuff, but do not wake me up. And, of course, inevitably, he's going to be playing some video game, get frustrated, and be like, oh, come on! You know, and then I'm just going to wake up like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> oh, man, that shit
1: monkey balls. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, but,
1: tr- you know... Oh, Two hours ago, I was working on a conference call, and then I hear through the ceiling upstairs, like I backflipped, ah! just like <laughs> screaming, and I'm like, oh, I hope no one heard that on the call that I'm on. And my yep. son is losing his mind because he died in Legend of Zelda: Age of Calamity because his backflip didn't work.
0: Oh yeah, yep. That's I'm very familiar with with the, but I did blank in you know the game argument. But uh, but no, I, I know we didn't talk about this on Boogeyman's Closet. We talked about it on Count Creepyhead about the the child swears. Um, Josh, I don't think I ever told you this story. And, and sorry, listeners, we're going off on tangents today. But um, <laughs> this was supposed to be a
1: somber, serious episode. I know, right? <laughs> we're all over the damn place. Hey, man, you got 150 plus episodes in. If people are along for the ride, they probably like this shit.
0: <laughs> exactly. There was Caleb and his friend were out in the backyard playing. And I don't think they realized I was awake and sitting in the kitchen drinking a cup of coffee. So they're back there and they're swearing like kids do when no one's around. But it's the most hilarious types of swear words. (laughs) Like, it's like, ass butt, ass butt poop. (laughs) Like, it's like, (laughs) wait, what? (laughs) Like, it was the weirdest shit. And I'm trying not to laugh because I'm trying to overhear what's being said. I had to leave the room and tell Jess, like, you gotta go listen to this. <laughs> because it was just the most ridiculous types of swear. Word. It was like combining any kind of swear. Like, <laughs> like shit's a swear, ass is a swear, damn is a swear,
1: damn shit butt swear. <laughs> it's like <"Wait>, what? <laughs> it's so weird. But oh man. oh man. I think we were talking about some movie. What, what was it? I forget now.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, was it Death Wish, I think? Uh, yeah. Death Wish. So anyway, <laughs> back to Death Wish. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So we have where were we? We have uh, uh, Hank going and looking for the trying to find the phone that works. Um. So Paul had gone out the apartment building through the back. He's watching Mr. Mushnick sitting out front. And there just happens to be a bunch of costumed folks running out of Paul's building at the same time.
2: Yeah, like A gang of theater kids dressed up as Wizard <laughs> of Oz characters.
0: Yeah, it reminded me of the scene in A Christmas Story where there's just the Wizard of Oz characters in the mall.
2: It's just like, he just blends right in. So it's like (laughs) Dorothy, Toto, the Scarecrow, Charles Bronson.
0: (laughs) He's like, (laughs) I'm one of the munchkins. And he just walks by.
2: He he didn't want like a heart, you know,
1: or like a brain. He's just (laughs) like, I want want my dead wife. He wants vengeance. (laughs) 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 I
0: I wish for vengeance. God! Oh man. oh man! Yeah, I I fully expected this to be like like you said, Mike, a very somber episode. <laughs> we're all over the damn place.
2: I'm in a mood. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, I, I'm loving it. I mean, we are our, our normal rule of thumb is we try to come in under the runtime of the movie, but you know what? It's it's our 150th episode. Fuck it, we're going long. So off we'll to see the wizard,
2: the <laughs> Wizard of Oz. <laughs> right, sorry. So Hank
0: re- returns to Mushnick to tell him there's no answer. Mushnick tells him to wait <laughs> wait by the building and takes off. Paul goes back to his work, gets his gun. Mushnick rush- rushes over looking for Paul and, and finds out from the guard that he just missed him. So Mushnick heads back to Hank and tells him to go home, that he's not needed. And I love this back and forth here. Because Hank goes, can I ask you a question? Is this Paul Kersey the bird? <laughs> he goes, I won't ask any more questions after that. And he goes go home. will yeah, I don't need you. And he goes
2: weird. <laughs> like what? <laughs> that is the weirdest back and yeah, like, forth. Who else would it be? What the fuck are you doing? If it's not him, <laughs> <laughs> right?
0: like, but I like how when he's like, go home, I don't need you. He just goes weird.
3: Yeah,
0: like, what? <laughs> so Paul heads into central park, gets cornered by three muggers. He kills two and gets shot by the third. The shooter, the shooter takes off and Paul gives chase. Meanwhile, Mushnik hears about the gunshots on the radio and takes off. Paul chases the mugger to some factory-looking area, holds his gun on him and tells him to draw. <laughs> just like what is this old west now? The mugger looks confused and Paul just passes out. <laughs> the mugger takes off. So, we cut to the police and emergency services arriving at the factory. Mushnik arrives and and takes the the first patrolman on the scene off to the side. The patrolman confiscated Paul's gun and tells him and, you know, a, and he tells Mr. Mushnik, I didn't tell anybody about this. So he goes, I was waiting for orders. Mushnik tells him to leave it out of his report, saying you never saw anything, making it very clear that they're not going after Paul. Mushnik heads over to the hospital and heads to Paul's room to talk to him. He shows Paul the gun and tells him if he gets out of town permanently, he'll drop the gun in the river and no charges will be pressed. So Paul has no choice but to leave. I got to comment on this, though, because. The, the actor does something here that I fucking hate. Uh, so Mushnik is supposed to be this, you know, story detective, like seasoned detective. He touches the gun without a glove on. No, no, no. He puts his finger on the fucking trigger while oh, shooting yeah. it to Paul. That drives me crazy. Anytime I see like a cop or a soldier or like a trained you know, someone who's been trained to use a weapon that they have their finger like placed on the trigger. I hate that. And, and, and it's a lot more prevalent in 70s and 80s movies. Like, if it's just some random teen picking up a gun or, like, in a Friday the 13th movie, I don't care. But if it's supposed to be like this, this is a detective. Like, this is a detective who's been on the job long enough that he's going to be retiring that year. Like, come on.
2: You wouldn't do You, do. you have expect Mushnick to itch his ear with it or something.
3: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> like, look down the barrel to see if it's loaded. You know, it's like, come on. But... So Bushnik goes outside through the
2: throng of reporters
0: who are asking if the vigilante is the man in the hospital. He tells him that those reports are false and that Paul Kersey is just another mugging victim and that the vigilante is still out there. So we cut to Paul arriving in Chicago, meeting with someone from his company who happily tells him about the apartment they got him, about his new office, yada, yada, yada. Paul looks over and sees some hooligans fucking around with a random woman at the train station. He goes over to help the woman pick up her things as the thugs mock him and flip him off. Paul smiles, gives him the finger gun. The end. Credits.
1: This is my single favorite scene, I think, in the whole movie. The little I mean, f- smile with the finger gun. Because it's I the one it. p- the one part of the movie where I was just like, fuck yeah. In a yeah, movie about a guy who goes on like a vigilante rampage to, you know, avenge his family. It's the only time when you are really like cheering for him.
2: <laughs> yep. It kind of scares me because it shows you how, like, he's unhinged and ready to just kill people. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, like, these guys were clearly, like, dickheads that are asking for it. But it could also be, like, somebody cuts him in line at Taco Bell. You know, like, <laughs> it could just be, like... That's my fucking Enchirito. <laughs> yeah, like, anything. And he's just going to be like, I'm going to shoot him. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, because that smile is unsettling And maybe that's just Charles Bronson smiling like that's just unsettling.
2: I'm going to gonna kiss this actress <laughs> just
0: slowly peels back his lips. I'm imagining like creaking hinges as he does it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, I'm going to stick with this mustache my whole life.
0: <laughs> it's so wispy. <laughs>
2: <Like>, it's just <laughs> his weird frog head. <laughs> like, <laughs> that mustache.
0: Uh, I mean, final thoughts, though. I fucking love this movie. I really do. I watched it twice before we recorded this. It's one of those films that, like, it's not something I can watch all the time, but it is definitely a movie that I have no problem revisiting and enjoying it every time I watch it. Um, I honestly love the whole franchise, but I feel like this one story-wise is is especially good. The other ones are just fun movies. This one has, like,
2: a solid story. Uh. what do you guys I think? agree. Is this the only action franchise? Am I or like missing an action? But this is really like biggest numbers, right?
0: Because uh-huh. usually
2: it's just like another vehicle with the actor. I think this is his only one. Yeah, his only franchise. No, I mean like of any actor. Like you know, there's Terminator.
0: Well, there's Lethal yeah.
2: Weapon. There's, uh, okay, uh, okay. Those. Yeah, I'm, I'm just yeah. Like, I'm drawing blanks.
1: Yeah, yeah I'm, um, I think Rambo, Rambo probably has the most entries if you count. If you're talking about action movie franchises, like where action is the genre, I think Rambo probably wins. Well, Wait, I think we're all forgetting maybe? one. We're we're forgetting the Fast and the Furious. Uh,
0: <laughs> we know we
1: we didn't forget it. We uh, we ignored it on purpose.
0: Fancy.
2: I mean, I know uh, we have
0: we have some fans of that franchise involved in the Red Pantheon. So <laughs>
2: um, it's a great movie, and uh, it's a shame that we just got a remake like ten years ago. It's probably too soon to revisit it because I feel like now more than ever it's a, a poignant topic yeah uh that could been you know could be discussed there's so many parallels now to the 70s like you when they were filming at nixon watergate all that was happening mhm you know now we have trump yep uh a lot you know violence vigilantism gun violence who's right who's wrong yep uh it would be great to revisit it, but, you know, they, they got the Bruce Willis one instead.
0: I feel like this would make a a really good, uh, like, HBO Max television show.
2: Like, yeah, to like, kind
0: of slowly see Paul's <laughs> breakdown yeah. and, like, you know, becoming the vigilante. And I, I feel like you could do a solid 6 to 12 episodes, you know, hour-long episodes about this story and, and tell the complete story.
2: They could film it and then never release it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, only, only if WB is involved. <laughs>
2: right. No,
1: I think you, you, you give this type of thing to someone like Vince Gilligan and you do like the Breaking Bad, you know, Better Call Saul approach where you do oh, a, yes. nice, a nice long slow burn where you take a to- perfectly normal guy and turn him into this vigilante who is just doing it for fun and you yeah. s- get to see that long change, you know, like that's a long arc and of course, you know, it, it, he's he's got to get his comeuppance at some point and it'll have to end badly, Um but yeah that would be an amazing show I'd probably watch that for like four seasons
2: <laughs> I think oh, hell yeah. to do it properly you can't do a man you'd have to be a woman I mean you'd have to like really buck expectations you'd have to have like Sophia from the Golden Girls. And I I know it sounds funny, but like.
0: No, I mean, I could definitely I I think this this type of stuff, we're talking like a traditional remake. um, I feel like you want to you want to keep it close to the chest. You want to keep that Charles Bronson as character. But a story like a a revenge story, like, yeah, I don't care. Male, female, black, white. I don't care what you what you want to change the character up to. Like, I feel like you could tell a really good story of this ilk as long as you take it seriously. This is a Raised by Rentals episode now.
1: Yeah, I we, think it's we, turn, turning that way. <laughs>
0: I think, we, I think we, we might need
1: to do a Raised by Rentals of this. Um, uh, I'm, I'm getting a lot of ideas. I'm like, oh, I don't want to get into it right now. But like, yeah, I would I would do this and I would do this. And I, was yep. like, I, can, I can picture the whole first season.
0: <laughs> well, Josh, I wanted to mention, uh, you had mentioned before we started recording, uh, mm-hmm. something about this that reminded you of The Walking Dead?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I, yeah, I was going to try and see if I could work that in here somewhere, but this is uh, the, my final notes is probably a good place to do it. So we mentioned before, like we kind of, our generation of, you know, guys, we grew up with these types of movies with the, the Steven Seagal's and the Charles Bronson's and, you know, there was this whole, not just a action movie genre, but even shit like kickboxer where it was like, reven- oh, yeah. revenge was the genre you know and right. we we grew up with these types of movies so i have this deep seated uh, love for the the movie that I, where I refer to the genre as like the Holy Crusade. You know, it's the kind of thing where mm-hmm. your, your, your normal character is so put upon and beat down and has everything taken away until he just can't fucking take it anymore and just, you know, goes to town. Like we mentioned Commando is a really good example of that. But it's even better when it's just like a regular dude. And mm-hmm. that's what my memory was of the Death Wish movies. I remembered the whole franchise being a more i think bloodthirsty and violent than it even really is even even some of the later movies and this first one specifically i haven't i didn't seen this in decades and i remembered it being much more of an action film than it is mm-hmm. uh, and i i love it for what it is i do think that the the third act is a little slow but i do i do like the movie overall but <laughs> this is why one of the things I didn't like about the walking dead was we had characters that were being built up in the walking dead to sort of like take on that role. And I'm thinking of Daryl specifically, right? Daryl is the part of the walking dead that I find the most fucking annoying. It's the, the, the character that's the most frustrating to me because he's like one of the coolest characters on the show. You know, he's the sort of like regular every everyday Joe country boy, you know, hunter type, but he turns into this fucking bad badass except up to the point where i quit watching the show after the the negan saga like he had he had never been let off the leash to just yeah. go on the fucking holy, holy crusade that they had been hinting at and teasing at for season after season after season. Like, every time he would go all full badass mode, he'd get bonked in the back of the head by some random dude with the fucking butt of a shotgun and then get captured and be, you know, locked up somewhere for a couple episodes and then get out and then go all badass again and then just, again, get captured. And it was like this <laughs> repeating cycle of like, when are they going to let Daryl just like? the fucking arrows and burn the shit down. Cause that that's what they need to unleash him on Negan, on the governor, on everybody. And yeah. we never got it. And maybe that's just me as an eighties kid who grew up with Steven Seagal, you know, and John Glad Van Damme and Charles Bronson, but, and fucking Rambo. Like I never got that. And it like, it killed the walking dead for me. Cause especially with a character like Negan, like why didn't Daryl just, you know, go full Rambo on him. Like, come on, right. man. Anyway, well, you, rant over.
0: You know, though, you, you do bring up a good point because in the comic book, we do get that with characters where they do go like all out berserk uh, in certain situations. And we, right. And we do get it a little bit with Rick in the TV show. Like they, they do justify or like, or they, I'm sorry, they do justice to some of the sequences with him where he gets his revenge on, certain characters like the cannibals um Mm -hmm. that was done really well and i really like and i mean they they did it it was almost scene for scene what happened in the comic book so i'm like that was really well done but a lot of times it's kind of neutered in comparison to what the comic book was and so yeah, I mean I, I feel that not only is it justified as an 80s kid, but I feel like it's justified as a fan of the franchise. Um, because yeah, you really did need that. And and I know this is not the Walking Dead podcast, but I have to comment here because I don't know if I'll ever get to talk about it again. Um I still think Daryl should have died when uh in that then the episode where where mm-hmm. uh you know where Negan, you know, takes out freaking Glenn and um I can't think of his name, the the dude with Abraham. the mustache. Abraham, thank you. Yeah um, I wholeheartedly thought Daryl was going to get taken down because it was like, okay, this is how they're going to make everybody hate Negan because yeah, like, yeah, I mean, you know what it, what it was is because they already kind of teased that Glenn was going to die in like a couple episodes prior where we all thought he fell into the, the zombies and got eaten, but he slid under the, the dumpster and got away type of thing. Like we already had that moment of like, oh, he's dead. So when they killed him in the show, as depressing as it was, it was not as shocking in the, as it was in the comic where it's like Glenn had always gotten away. He was always one of the guys that was like right there with Rick. And then when you turn the page after fricking Negan smashed him, it was so jarring, but the show I feel it didn't earn it. So I think if they had to kill Daryl, like people would have lost their fucking minds.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I totally agree. And then like, the whole group, you know, all of Rick's people could have gone on that crusade, you know, to yeah. to take Negan down. In fact, yeah, when Christina and I, when that show uh, aired, we, we were watching it live at the time. We... at. As the episode started, we both decided to write down the name of, like, who's going to die and mm-hmm. put on a sheet of paper, you know, put it in a, in, a, in a hat and then wait and then see who was right. You know, see who predicted it. And, yeah, Daryl was my vote. And, I, you know, yep. we ended up we ended up both being wrong. Um, but I was like, damn, like, yeah, that from a story perspective, that's the thing that would have made the most sense. Yep. And then and then they just neutered Daryl after that, like over and over again. And like I said, I did eventually quit watching it because I was just too frustrated with the fact that it was like never really getting anywhere. It wasn't ever really paying off, you know? Yeah. And like, this isn't the breaking bad podcast either, but I had the same problem with breaking bad. I love breaking bad as a show. I think better call Saul is a far, far superior show fight me. But uh, (laughs) one, one of the things I don't like about breaking bad is that, you know, uh, Heisenberg Walter white, he never got to be the, uh, like, you know, drug czar, you know, emperor of his little empire that the show was leading to. And I think that we, He may not have ended the show that way, but he needed to get to that point. I think that it was a promise made to the viewers. That was, you know, a rug pulled out from underneath. uh, And it always pissed me off. I was like, well, what the fuck am I watching this show for? If you're not going to like follow through on promises.
0: See, and that's where and you and I have talked about this on Raised by Rentals, but this is this is why finite series are much better than ongoing, because when you have an end goal in sight, when you have like, you know where you're going. And you're working toward that goal. The story pays off so much better when it's just seasonal and you're like, okay, what are we going to do this season? And then what are we going to do the next? It, it eventually runs out of steam and you become a parody of yourself.
2: I tapped out yeah. when uh, they <laughs> killed Carl because the actor wanted to go to college. Yeah. That's when I was like this, what the, like there's so much of the plot. You need yep. Carl. Oh and yeah. And he wanted to take, a lesser schedule so he can go to college. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yep.
1: Yeah. But again, the problem with the episodic TV, you know, and yeah, yeah, to your point, another reason why I better call Saul is better. Even if it wasn't, you know, crafted better, it just, it, it, it is, it got off to a good start. It had a head start rather because it has to end at a certain point. Like it has to be finite, even yep. if they didn't know how many seasons they were going to do it has to end in the same place no matter how many seasons they squeeze in between, you know, to get him there. Right. But the the payoff is the same no matter what. Yeah.
0: But, uh, <laughs> we're man, We're, this is, this is going to be a fun episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about, i like, man, we've, we've squeezed a lot in here. So I'm glad it's, it's episode 150. Cause it kind of feels, kind of feels celebratory, <laughs> but, uh, the little bit of, of, uh, trivia that I, I wrote down for this because there was a lot of trivia, but some of it I find very bullshitty. Uh, like the name Paul Kearzy was apparently one of the extras that they hired for the film, and he allowed them to use his name in exchange for appearing in all po- in all possible scenes where an extra was required. I find that that's probably bullshit,
3: yeah. Cool. Um,
0: that then, of course, you know, we have to have who was hot, who else was envisioned for the role. Uh, Steve McQueen was apparently one of them, Clint Eastwood. Because of the success of Dirty Harry, which again I don't yeah. think so, Gregory Peck, which I could see, um, and the, my favorite one, Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of wish that was the thing.
1: <laughs> For sure. Now Steve McQueen and Clint Eastwood, I both could have. Yeah, they could have rocked that uh, the movie, and they would have been amazing in it. But Elvis, and see, you, you know me, I'd love putting an actor who you know putting them in, in something that isn't their genre i love doing that i do that all the time on raise my rentals when we oh, do yeah. like fan cast shit like like who can we stick in here that like is normally you know in a comedy or whatever
2: yep you know no, who, and it, uh you know what doesn't hold up if you ever that? watch it again is dirty harry i haven't seen
0: that probably in about 20 years Same.
2: it's extremely dated yeah um, i
0: i feel like it would be
2: <laughs> but anyway it's, it's
0: been years it's definitely been years since i've seen it i kind of want to watch it now that i've watched this and the the sequel to this i kind of want to watch some of these other revenge style like you know Mad- man who's had enough kind of movie <laughs> uh
2: 12 past midnight's great with mm-hmm. bronson uh that is the, like it's a serial killer he's going after the mechanics great
0: the mechanic uh, i remember i like that one
2: if you got almost three hours uh once upon a time in the west if you like Sergio Leone, mm-hmm. uh, who did Good, the Bad and the Ugly, Fistful of Dollars. Uh, yeah. it's amazing. Uh, uh,
0: trust me, I have a soft spot for Westerns.
2: Yeah, it's <laughs> one of my favorite movies. But uh yeah.
0: Um the this this one I, I thought was, was kind of interesting that they uh the the whole Death With Death Wish franchise was sold to Canon for two hundred thousand dollars.
1: Seems pretty so, cheap.
0: Yeah, I was like, wow, that's because apparently Dino De Laurentiis, who, you know, who basically owned the rights to this movie, didn't want to do any more. So he's like, well, let me make back a little bit more on my uh, on my investment. And, you know, even though the, the film did really well, he didn't want to make any sequels. Um, so sold it to Canon for two hundred thousand. I was like, damn. And they milked the fuck out of it.
2: <laughs> they sure did. They you... bought Charles Brunson a new hip.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. But then the other one is uh, this. I, th- I thought was interesting because it it fits with the film. Is Bronson apparently said in an interview about this m- this movie? He goes, "I certainly don't advocate anyone taking the law into their own hands. I don't think the film advocates that either. If my films have a lesson, it's that violence doesn't pay. My opinion is that violence only breeds more violence." I was like, "That's interesting, especially because he did a lot of these mm-hmm. films. Like I I like the fact that he was very aware." of that concept like no like yeah we're, we're making this movie but please understand this so i was like that's cool um now th- this also i don't know if it's true or if someone just decided to kind of connect the dots apparently this film is said to have inspired several copycat incidents of vigilantism around around the country uh probably the most famous being that of uh, the 1984 uh, new york city subway shootings uh, four youths shot by bernard bernard getz uh, who was approached by the teens on the subway car, demanding they give him his money. And he, you know, sh- shot him. <laughs> so it's like, and it mm. was dubbed the Death Wish Vigilante. So I'm like, I don't know. Like, that's the first I'm ever hearing that this inspired multiple Vigilante shootings. But maybe? Who knows? But there's like three pages of trivia on IMDb. so and And some of it is very questionable. <laughs> so... But now that we have gone uh, more than a half an hour over the runtime of the film, uh, (laughs) we should probably (laughs) get to our social media. (laughs) So uh, uh, if you're not following us, check out The Boogeyman's Closet on both Facebook and Instagram. Maurice normally handles, handles our Twitter, so I'll toss it over to one of you guys. What's our Twitter? At Boogeyman's The. Thank you very much. Uh, we're also part of the Rad Pantheon, so check out RadPantheon.com and Rad Pantheon on all the socials where uh, you'll find us and a bunch of other podcasts. I'm going to toss it over to uh, to you guys to, to give some plugs for the Rad Pantheon. So, Mike, do you want to plug anything?
2: Listen to Count Creepy Heads Saturday morning Monster Mash for all of your meandering topics and sometimes toys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what about you, Josh? What do you got for us?
2: Uh, Yeah, check out Raised
1: by Rentals, uh, the show that Mike and I do where we look at pop culture from the VHS era and try to improv, improve, uh, right off the top top of our heads to imagine what-if sequels to our favorite movies, TV, and games. It's kind of like fantasy football for nerds. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at Comics Boost, just spell comics with an X, where I feature crowdfunding projects for comic books uh, looking for funding, and there's lots of cool projects on there. I'm always posting up new stuff, so come check it out
0: definitely and uh i am always i'm always looking at those kickstarters you're posting and i'm wishing i had more money because <laughs> i'm like damn
2: that looks cool am telling, i me am i out of line in assuming you guys are going to be doing the death wish seven death wish from retirement home
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we might be now <laughs>
1: <laughs> that'd be great we we get we get uh yeah we haven't we have uh file footage of like an old Charles Bronson sitting in an armchair. And he's just imagining what life would have been like. And then we go back and like do a flashback with uh, like a younger actor. <laughs> no, see, you know what we got to do
0: is we have to do a sequel. That's like a really high number. So people question like what happened between, because like, it's like that, that old Cosby movie, Leonard part six, where you're like, Oh yeah. What happened to the other five? Like what, wait, is there, is there five of these? Like, you know, or like uh what is it? House four where people don't know <laughs> that, the horror show was house three. So everyone's like, wait, what happened to house three? So it'll be like death wish 17. Be like, wait,
2: what? Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>, like... <laughs> nice. Is in hospice. And this is an action film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's just a nurse wheeling him around in the bed. He's got a, got a, like an oxygen mask on, holding a gun. Like,
3: Argh. Boom.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you know what it is? Is uh, all those nuns come in and they surround him, you know, and they're like, you know, we've been watching you, you know, we've we've learned your the, your secrets, you know, the ways of the sidewalk vigilante, <laughs> and they like oh carry God. on. They carry on his legacy as a pack of like you know gun-toting nuns who just walk around like you know sort of being ignored by everybody until they come across like a jaywalker, and they all just like flip back their habits and pull out fucking Uzis, <laughs> and,
0: and you know. There would be a moment where, like, one of the nuns gets taken out, and the bugger would be like, "Which well, black and white and red all over, a dead <laughs> yeah. nun."
3: <And> it just <laughs>
0: shoots
1: her in the head, you know. <laughs> Talk about oh. a holy crusade, <laughs> dude. We 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 have this is
0: a fun fucking episode. I so fa- you know, listeners, I hope you guys enjoy this because man, we had a blast. <laughs> oh shit So, uh, for those of you that uh, want to watch our next movie before we cover it, it's going to be episode 151 Guns Akimbo. So, we're going to see Harry Potter shoot some fools. (laughs) And it's awesome. But, all right, guys, I think this is where we're going to cut it off. So, uh, as always, this is Mike saying goodbye. See ya. Bye.